You better be listening to Slezoids or I must break you. Their cruelty to my people is all I've known. What's to become of our world? You said you're never going to step a foot in Texas again. I know, this is unexpected. I'm not going to use an expected. Your last job is over 17 years ago. That's quite a gap. Well, you know, I've worked almost every day for the last 17 years. I moved back in with my wife last week. No, I'm calling the cops! Fuck! There is a weight a man can accrue. This is where all the good stuff happens. The weight created by his past actions. It is a weight which can never be removed. All in. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. We are going Yakuza mode. Join the sleaze. (laughs) We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an honor shout out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we are uh, have officially been doing for uh, almost uh, four years. The show yeah. has been on for four years. The Patreon episodes, I think, started like a couple months in. So we're, we're getting pretty close. But there is I did the math. There actually finally is over 100 bonus episodes episodes and that is not including the bonus transmission series which takes it up to like i don't know like 130 140 or something like that mm-hmm. so if you haven't made the jump patreon.com slash these podcast can recommend doing that there's tons of bonus episodes and speaking of which we did have a lot of people make the jump this week so i'm going to give them their shout out here we have uh paul Merrick, uh stefan uh aiden staggs uh, oh, and, and Stefan actually signed up at the the annual tier as well. Signed up for a whole year of the oh, show, nice. which uh, I've mentioned a couple times now. But that's something you can do if you guys are interested. You get a little discounted rate by the month if you sign up for an entire year in advance. So thanks for doing that. We got William Wend, uh, Big Dick Jeffrey. <laughs> Good thanks, to have Jeff. you here, Big Dick. Sea uh, Jack forty seven, Marcus uh, Michalik, um, PJ Endler. Uh, Corey Cash, uh, just Cece. Uh, oh my God. Um, <laughs> Kufax Kroptikin. That is absolutely cool. not correct, but thank you so much. Yeah, um, cool name. Uh, Neil, uh, Joseph, Doghouse, Richard Van Dusen, Dessen, uh, Jordan Farmer. Uh, Trash Ben, who made, uh, which is a great name, and who also <laughs> upgraded from $5 a month to $10 a month. Awesome. Um, and I did, I do believe, did join us for our uh, samurai mindset watching of Jack Frost. Was that his first? My God. I, I think that was the first one. I think he signed up to join up to watch that one. So that was an amazing first virtual watch to join us for, where we were all <laughs> just slowly demoralized. <laughs> Um, Definitely worth the cash. Thank you. But thank you so much, Ben. (laughs) And then also Bradley V, we should give a shout out, who upgraded uh, from $10 a month to the annual tier uh, and paid up for an entire year uh, as well. So thanks uh, so much to Bradley. Great way to kick in the new year. 
But yes, those are all of the uh, new patrons. Hope you guys are enjoying those bonus episodes, and thank you guys so much. That's the one plug for the week. The other plug, as always, is um, Apple Podcasts. If you guys are listening on Apple Podcasts, and I see the stats, I see uh, that you are, as you listening right now on Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the very bottom and give us a good old rating and review down there. It helps us climb the rank at uh, iTunes and find new listeners. And then uh, the very last plug, as always, is merch. If you guys like the poster art that local uh, horror artist Trevor Henderson did for the show, uh, you can get that put on anything you want. Uh, Mm -hmm. A shirt, a hoodie, a uh, mug, a pillow, notebook, whatever you can think of, you can probably get it. Uh, That link is in the description of of every episode as well as over at sleezoidspodcast.com for those interested in that. But yeah, welcome Welcome to a new year. This is kind of crazy. Yeah. Uh, longtime listeners will be very familiar with what we do at the at, in in the new year. We kind of skip all the usual stuff. I, although I guess I can say I'm Josh. You know, I'm Josh Lewis, and this is my co-host. I'm Jamie. How you doing? I figured we should at least do that part because these episodes actually do generate a lot of new listeners, which is something yeah. maybe people don't know. But a lot of people end up searching. They just people want to find out what the best movies of the year were. And uh, so we, we do hear a lot of people who discover the show through these episodes each year, which is which is, a, a, you know, for us, it's a great you know incentive to keep doing these episodes. But also it's just kind of nice because for anyone uh, who is new or hasn't listened before or maybe, you know, has only been listening for long enough that they haven't actually heard us do one of these episodes. We always kick in the new year by uh, wrapping up the previous year and uh, counting down Jamie and I's top 10 genre films, uh, the kind of films that are successors to the horror and sci-fi and action films that we talk about on the main feed show, but are coming out, you know, in theaters now. And, uh, we, we kind of put the year to bed by doing that. And it's also turned into kind of like this nice thing that we hear from a lot of people where they tell us that, you know, they bust out their, their pen and paper, they bust out their letterboxed watch list and they literally just start adding things that, you know, maybe by happenstance they didn't hear about, or they just never got around to and, you know, needed the reminder. And so this is always a, a, a really fun episode to, to do for that reason. Um, so yeah, we, we usually kind of skip all the usual stuff where we talk about the previous weeks because these are always a long episode no matter what. Yeah. Although over the course of the show, the show has just gotten longer. I don't know that these episodes are <laughs> any longer the supersized ones they used to be because <laughs> like two and a half or yeah. three hour episodes are less common than they used to be when we first started the show. Do you remember, Jamie? Our first episode was like an hour. Yeah, and now it's, it's pretty that much would never grown happen. in size every year. I think the the average was like an hour 15 when we started, something like that. And now the average is about two hours at least. Yeah, so. I'd, I'd say it honestly gets probably closer to like 220 now or something like that. It's just it's it's very it, it's very interesting how it's just naturally kind of, you know, we've we've gotten we want to talk a little bit more. We feel like more movies deserve more conversation. That's right. Um, so, yeah. And, and we, we've heard a lot of great feedback. People, some people really like the longer episodes. So, yeah. Also, I wanted to mention before we get started, uh, I am using a new microphone, so some of the uh, more casual listeners will probably hear maybe a difference. Hopefully, it's a good difference. I'm still figuring out some of the uh, some of the kinks here. So, yes, uh, but but. Um, it's it's also a blue yeti, which is I think what the microphone Josh uses. So we're hoping to sound a little <laughs> bit more the same. So just wanted to give you yeah. guys a warning if anything does mess up <laughs> later on. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. we'll we'll th- throw it in there just in case. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it, it has been interesting just you know uh, li- just having to you know switch to doing it virtually. Uh, yeah. Which is something. This yeah. is you know we, we this this marks another full year of having done the show basically you know completely separately when we first started the show all through 2018 and 2019. Um, we uh, we recorded in the same room as each other. So yep. the, the dynamic has kind of changed a little bit just because some of the internet latency and how much we hear each other. Sometimes we talk over each other a little bit more just because <laughs> of the way that, you know, the, that we can't hear each other as well as we used to. Um, yeah. So but but it, it's been an interesting change and uh, I definitely didn't expect it to last as, as, as long as it has. But I but I will <laughs> say in comparison to 2020, I feel like we we had a little bit more to work with um, this year. Yeah. Which was which was kind of cool. I actually went yes. back and listened to some of the intros we did for the previous years, and one of the funniest things that will that that, that just had to get a chuckle out of me was uh, mm. we we started 2019 uh, in the 2019 best of 2019 episode. We said, "Man, can't wait for Dune in like seven months." Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't uh, really like looked back. I bet there's some like uh, some some strange do- almost doomsday predictions that we didn't even know about. Just saying yes. things on so the that, show. That that was a very funny one to hear because now we are finally talking about Dune. Literally two years later. Yeah, um, yeah. after that, when we were we were anticipating it in the next couple months when we recorded that episode. Um, <laughs> uh, so but. But yeah, welcome to the the best of 2021 episode. For anyone unfamiliar with the way that we kind of structure these episodes, what we do first is we we do a round of honorable mentions where Jamie and I go back and forth, uh, listing out some of the films that you know either just kind of like narrowly miss the list, or you know maybe we're kind of like closer to a three, but they were kind of like ambitious threes that we we yeah. felt maybe should have got noticed more than some other films. Um, and then after that, we will break it down into our official top 10 and we will go, you know, sort of like my 10, Jamie's 10, my nine, Jamie's nine. And we will go, uh, go on, uh, doing that until we have, uh, gotten all the way to the number one, the objectively best movie. (laughs) Yes. Although I'll have to give you guys another warning here. Uh, this this top ten, I, uh, the uh, in a certain section of them, I would say there is a legitimate order, but there's a couple in there that I could probably swap uh, on a different day. It, it's just yeah, it, there there have been some real close ones this year. I found so. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I think somehow we made the best out of 2020 and 2021, despite the fact that the. Uh, you know, the sort of the movie industry and the new release industry has been really affected, obviously, by this entire situation. Yeah. Um, but just in different ways, 2020, I was looking at it and uh, because there was such a good year for festival films in 2019, we still had a pretty good list because right. all of those 2019 festival films carried over into 2020. So we had things like uh, Bakuro, we had like Wild Goose Lake, um, Oof, yeah. you know, like like we, we had like great foreign films and festival films that, you know, actually got theatrical releases in 2020 that we were able to include on the list. And this year, 
the opposite happened was that 2020 had a really obviously terrible festival year where like all of the films pulled and hardly anything played and anything that did play kind of released like immediately, like things like Mm. Nomadland were, you know, kind of like at the, in the festival 2020 and they actually came out instead of waiting until 2021. Um, (laughs) so the, the first like five months of 2021, there was like nothing. There was no, the usual sort of slow leaking of the great festival films over the course of that month and there was basically just nothing but then the last like six months or so maybe even less than that maybe the last like four or five months we've just kind of had a lot of really big mainstream movies finally get released um, yeah so yeah it's kind of it, it, it's kind of worked out i i ended up having basically just as many four-star movies as i did last year this year so uh yeah i had i had trouble killing off a movie or two off my list nice yeah um i uh I did. I did want to mention too that I think in the last top ten we put Bad Trip, which ended up being a 2021 movie because yes. of its like release. So I just wanted yeah, to give we, a shout out to that movie. If you haven't checked it out yet, you should because technically I guess it's a this year released film. But we we threw it on the list last year. So. Yeah, we threw it on the list last year because there was basically like no release date in sight for it. Like it like yeah. accidentally leaked on Amazon and then Netflix bought it and it looked like they weren't gonna release it or they were just like shelving it or something. So yeah, we just threw it on last year to keep people kind of like uh, aware of it. But yeah, no, it's a good shout out because. Yeah we, yeah, we put that on last year's list, even though I think some people will be putting it on this year's list. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, yeah. All right. Well, I guess we should get to the honorable mentions. Yeah, let's do it. Let's jump into the honorable mentions here. We'll go uh, uh, back and forth, Jamie and I, and until we've kind of listed off everything that's on our lists here. Yeah. And uh, yeah, let's see what we uh, let's see what we've got here. Um, and I think for the most part, too, we don't try to do spoilers, uh, just as that warning as well. But sometimes yeah. they come out in the top 10. So I guess just a warning. I'm going to try not to do it. But um, yeah, I'm going to try not to do it, too. But yeah, it, it is worth noting that, you know, if, if the film kind of came out like six months ago and we feel <laughs> we feel pretty comfortable kind of talking about it now, we might, you know, have maybe just mild spoilers. I, I won't try to like yeah. give away like the, you know, like the endings to films or anything like that. But Right, yeah, we'll, right. Uh, yeah. we'll, we'll we'll talk around some ones that we we think are are super spoilery. Yeah, but yeah, cool. let's do it. Let's jump into the honorable mentions here, which I kind of like always starting with, um, kind of like more in like the three star realm uh, with the honorable mm. mentions. Maybe something that was kind of um, kind of underseen. So for my first honorable mention, it's actually going to be something that Jamie recommended uh, to me that I watched. And I kind of caught last minute as I was doing some last minute homework. Um, And this was a direct-to-video thriller called Till Death. Oh, yeah. Um, Fox. Yeah, which, which stars Megan Fox and is directed by some dude who basically had done, I think he did like one short film, and his name is S.K. Dale. Um, And... Yeah, it is essentially this uh, sort of survival thriller slash cat and mouse thriller. It's it starts off with um, Megan Fox uh, being strapped to her her husband or handcuffed to her husband by her <laughs> husband uh, just before he commits suicide and waking up basically and being you know having to drag around his corpse. So in in that sense, it kind of has a similar premise to something like Gerald's Game, which was a movie that was like right. actually one of my favorite genre movies of 2017. 
directed by Mike Flanagan, obviously the Stephen King novel. So it has, it has a similar premise to that where like the couple is alone in the cabin and one of them dies and you know, sort of like the woman is put in this survival situation. How do I get out of here? Um, and what was weird about till death was that about halfway through out of nowhere, it basically switches into panic room. The David right. Fincher film where it turns into sort of the robbers are breaking into the house and then it turns into more of instead of a survival thriller where it's like, is she going to saw her hand off to get out of this situation? <laughs> it's more of like a, you know, can she avoid these two criminals who are trying to break into the safe? And it's kind of set up that the husband maybe also contacted them so that maybe they would kill her or, you know, something like that. And while yeah. it's not maybe as good as Gerald's Game or Panic Room um, for the budget level that it's clearly on. Uh, I thought that this was like the, the logistics of it were pretty were shot and staged pretty cleanly. Uh, yes. It was pretty gruesome with the violence when it wanted to be. There's like a dude who gets his uh, uh, head smashed into like a like a coat hanger uh, thing at one point. That's pretty gruesome. And there's like eyeballs being stabbed and gunshots to the head. And you know it's it's pretty gruesome. And I thought Megan Fox uh, is is you know, she, she had quite a good physical performance. Like there's, there's great little moments of her, you know, in her bare feet on the snow, just like, you know, trying to catch her breath and covered in blood. And half the yeah. movie is her having to drag around the corpse of her husband that is handcuffed to her, yeah, which is you know kind of like the sick joke to it. <laughs> apparently the actor was actually like handcuffed to her a lot of the time too. So she is just dragging around a middle-aged this man. big man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Throughout a cabin. It's, it's something else. Like even, even just the image itself of watching a woman deal with something as simple as like, what are you going to do when you're handcuffed to a dead corpse and you have to uh, get out of the area? It's it's just like that simple premise really works well. And, you know, it's a tight 89 minutes. It's just a, a fun one location thriller. I really enjoyed it as well. Yeah. Yeah. So check out, check out, uh, till death. That is one of our, you know, we usually have like two or three direct to video movies. I feel like on the list of, you know, genre movies that were, you know, kind of stronger than even stuff that got released in theaters. And that was definitely one of them for this year. So check it out. Yeah. Uh, for me, I'll mention, uh, it's called coming home in the dark. Uh, it was directed by James Ashcroft. It's this like uh, New Zealand, uh, thriller, kind of like an outback thriller. They it, a lot of it's located um, while they're uh, driving, and you're kind of learning about this guy's past. Who first appears is just this very uh, simple school teacher, and then these two men arrive, and you kind of you know uh, discover what what he went through in the past and why these men are after him and and all of that. It's just it's very uh, it's pretty simple, but it's it's very just dark and gritty. Um, uh, cool. and I had, a, I had a really good time with it. So, and it's always fun to go to, uh, that area like New Zealand and Australia. So, um, that's also got the, the location work just on its own is, is also pretty nice. A lot of, a lot of good, uh, nighttime photography. Sweet. Um, so that would be something I would suggest as well. And that's also like another tight 90 minute thriller. So very easy to watch. And I think it's on Netflix. So yeah. easy access on that one. Yeah, we've got we've got quite a few of those. Um, one of the more sort of mainstream studio releases that I you know ended up kind of watching multiple times because I thought that it was you know kind of I don't know maybe uh, not necessarily underrated, but um, you know definitely not as talked about as I you know would have expected based on how you know much I enjoyed it. Uh, Wrath of Man. 
Oh yeah. I think we covered it on the for that, honestly. Yeah, me too. It's one of the highest threes that I gave this year. Uh, and honestly, I kind of want to watch it again to see if it gets there. Cause for, for me, the only real issue with it is that I do think that some of the character writing and some of the performances are just a little too generic. Um, mm-hmm. that yeah, I don't, I don't get too much character detail out of it that I kind of wish that I, I could have got. Um, but other than that, I think that it is like an incredible, you know, sort of logistics based heist movie. It overtly cribs from things like heat and oceans 11. There's a lot of this kind of like planning and execution sort of expository editing and these really, really like well-realized, like slickly realized suspense set, set pieces. Yeah, that uh, that then kind of get caught up in this this sort of uh, very brooding kind of structure, and it uh, that turns it into kind of like this macho, very nasty feeling yeah. kind of revenge movie. Um, and I I think some people kind of had complaints about it being like a little too dour, but I mean that was what I really liked. But I liked how grim and kind of cruel it was. The fact that this is a movie that takes detours into like full on torture sequences and child porn dungeons, and yeah. you know, and and you know, there's there's kind of like this overlooming mystery around it of someone you know who's involved in crime, who's experienced loss, and is trying to sort of impose his rage onto like other people. And yeah, I think I think that at a, at a certain point you know how how gross it was you know uh really kind of rubbed up against the, the the slicker genre machinery heist kind of elements to it that yeah. i found you know kind of rewarding and kind of interesting um after a while you know that the, the fact that the revenge still felt really dirty um even though you know you, you kind of understand where it's coming from and at a certain point you just feel the tension of sitting around and waiting for these these two forces to run into each other. One of them being Jason Statham, um, who honestly gives a pretty good performance uh, as this guy just you know tr- pretending to be an, an on the ground security guard to find out you know who uh, wronged him, which I won't say exactly how they did. Um, and then uh, little Scott Eastwood, uh, the, the yeah. only probably the only time I've ever been you know I wouldn't say I was over. He doesn't do a lot, but it was one of the first times where I felt that he was used pretty well for a film. Where they yeah. just made him this little shit that doesn't talk much and just kind of looks cool and uh, is you know also kind of evil in a way. So yeah, yeah, and I I really did like all of the the macho dialogue. I especially love the introduction when he's arriving at the at the security bank. And there, he's just it, the guy's just introducing him to all the people, and all of the dialogue is very much like you know, dick sucking jokes and just big giant men making a bunch of macho jokes. And I just I always love that kind of callback stuff. And like what you said, mixing in all the grit. Guy Ritchie still can't help himself but bring in some of his comedy as well. Um, yeah, you know, when that grittiness is happening. I mean, you also have what? What's the line where it's like Jason Statham looks at Post Malone and tells him to suck his own dick or something like that? Like it's just, just oh yeah, really. I, it, it, it's like something stuff. like put it up your own ass or something like that. I can't even. I can't yeah. even remember. It's something like it, that, but it's, it's too Post Malone. I mean, you're watching Jason Statham take out Post Malone. There's something about that too that I think Guy Ritchie knew <laughs> what he was doing. Um, yeah, it's 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 very good. I would highly suggest it. Very very fun. Yeah, yeah. Now that's uh, um, that 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 was one kind of early on that we caught. That's definitely worth uh, checking out if you you know want an R-rated action movie that is more like ominous staging and build up versus just, you know, uh, you know, kind of like the current trend of just 
throwing in some John Wick gunplay and calling it a day. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, my next one is uh, Old Henry, uh, starring Tim nice. Blake. Nice, this is also on mine. Yeah, directed by Patsy Monseroli. I hope I got that right, or Ponceroli, rather. Um, That's right. J- Jamie has to pronounce names now. Yeah, and I'm also bad at it, so there you go. Uh, this this one was really good. It's kind of like a, a slow burn uh, Western film. Uh, Tim Blake Nelson's playing this very recluse character that... Uh, he definitely he has a past that's kind of slowly coming back to him uh and i don't really want to spoil too much but that's essentially what it is it's very very sad and uh somber um fairly dark a lot of the time it's it's basically a build-up of uh of a man's past coming back to him until we get to this really great kind of shootout that Uh, I don't want to spoil any major details. And they kind of throw in a little bit of uh, history in there that isn't necessarily uh, accurate, but I do like the idea of how they they, uh, imply it. So, yeah, I I, I would highly suggest it. I think it's I think it's really good. And I, I could see people like loving this thing. Actually, I just felt it was a little bit. Um, derivative in style sometimes like uh, it, it did feel very much like somebody trying to do Clint Eastwood and I do think he does it well I just I didn't see too much of a discernible style this time around but I did want to rewatch it as well so there might be something I, I just missed but it's it's still very very good and I would highly suggest it yeah, I, th- I thought it was cool. It was like this really lean, um, ki- a combination of like trying to be a little bit of like one of those more sort of like mournful sort of character westerns, but then also yeah. recognizing that it's kind of also this sort of like siege B movie western. Um, so, so, so sometimes it's got a little bit of that like Unforgiven, like it, you know, Tim Blake Nelson is trying to move on from a life of violence and you can tell that he's kind of naturally gifted at it or he's running away from it and it kind of comes back to him in an interesting way where he's trying to sort of like right a wrong where he's trying to protect someone um, right. whereas uh, uh, Stephen Dorff who he thinks is kind of like the unchecked law or someone who might not even be the law and is just trying to get personal revenge on this guy and he decides he's going to protect him and there's a little bit more complicated details that kind of get thrown in in the last 20 minutes that yeah, make it kind of a little bit sadder and bleaker. Um, but it, it is a lot of kind of like sort of slow, arty Western buildup to just like a really solid 20 minute old school Western shootout. Um, and, yeah. and, and when it hits, the violence is, is very sudden. Uh, there's a little bit of kind of like that Western mythologizing uh, to it. And yeah, the, I mean, I thought Tim Blake Nelson and Stephen Dorff, who kind of get the two main uh, performances, I thought they were both pretty solid. Yeah, um, and I also like how uncool Tim Blake Nelson is by this point. Oh yeah, he does not look cool at all. No, he looks absolutely. He's, he's, he's got the worst beard you've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just unkept and horrible. But then when he just starts slinging and like his kind of his past comes back, it's it's really good stuff. So. Yeah. Uh, next up for me, another direct-to-video one that I want to throw in. The other direct-to-video one that I wanted to talk about, which I thought was pretty underrated, uh, One Shot. Yeah, I was going to just mention that. Yeah, so one one shot, which is the uh, the new film from uh, I'm going to call him friend of the pod because we basically talk about him every year at some point. Uh, <laughs> Scott Atkins, hell yeah, um, 
And so he, for anyone unfamiliar with Scott Adkins, which if you've been listening to the show for a while, you probably are familiar. He is like basically the god of direct-to-video martial arts movies right now. Um, and has been, honestly, for probably like nearly a decade. It's really yeah. surprising that no one has picked up on this guy and just been like, yeah, why don't we put him in like a real deal $20 million movie? No, it's um, wild. I think he'll get it, but it's it's unbelievable that it hasn't happened yet, just given the amount of awesome action movies that this guy has done. Yeah, the, the, like there, there's so much interesting, you know, sort of directors that he is finding just by, you know, basically being like, you know, we can make this really derivative, you know, cheap action movie that, you know, we can sell to digital rental heads because they'll be like, yeah. hey, that kind of looks like that one movie I watched once. Um, so it's kind of it's they're kind of cynically greenlit in that way. But the thing about them is that despite being cynically greenlit, um, they aren't lazy. Uh, no, like the what, people what, seem to really care. The people behind the, the they, they really get to flex behind the camera with the yep. actual action that they're doing, and and this is a like this is a direct to video filmmaker doing literally. It's called one shot doing a single take feature length action film. Yeah, um, and for the and most part, they they pull it off. I mean, I will say they that do. This kind of gimmick can get a little bit tiresome, and there are moments that I that I feel it a little bit in this movie. But the uh, the camera work is honestly very clean. A lot of wide shots, given that they're trying to do the seamless one shot and the kind of digital mm-hmm. stitching. Um, all the action is incredibly clear, uh, and I thought it was going to get a little bit more muddled but it, it's it's fantastic they do a lot of like open field shootouts and uh um in like really closed in hallway shootouts that they have to kind of apply different mm-hmm. techniques to um there's there's some some really good stuff if you if you're an action fan i mean this is i think a must just based on the premise alone just watching these guys do what they're doing on a technical in a technical sense, mm-hmm. it's it's definitely worth it just for that alone. Like you're not going to get much out of the story. Obviously, it's very basic. It's like you know, uh, terrorists come and take over a base, and they have to you know. Uh, uh, I d- I do defend. like that, it, that that it's like a United States like torture black site that yeah, they that's come onto. Sweet. They even I will say this. This is something I want to give it props to too. Before the the uh, big shootout starts, and it's basically like an hour and fifteen minutes of shooting. Um, they do have a pretty filthy scene where someone's getting tortured and it's kind of reminiscent of like, uh, it's, it's not anywhere near as good, of course, but it's kind of reminiscent of, uh, what you see in, is it zero dark 30? Yeah. Zero dark 30. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's just, you know, a guy being tortured while he's kind of being hung upside down and, and all of that and being waterboarded and, and all that, but that's how they started. And that's also, I like that because they're kind of starting it. Like these are the supposed heroes that you're about to see, you know, these are the people defending this, this black site. Um, so it does kind of get a little complicated. doesn't dive too much into it, but I did appreciate that. Yeah, I, I liked that. Like the the setting is very zero dark thirty, and then when it turns into this, you know, the this sort of more like real time all in one shot logistical siege film, it's a, uh, you know, it has more of like that assault on precinct thirteen kind of thing, where it's just like an endless army is encroaching upon these people. And uh, yeah, the sheer competence and duration of the action choreography basically just carries it. Because again, as Jamie mentioned, it basically turns into a, a full one hour and 15 minute long set piece that is just like dirty over the shoulder tracking shots of like these tactical gun plays and these kind of movements that they're making. There's like bloody stealth stabbings. There's like cameras constantly racking focus down the gun sight so you can see what they're seeing. And yeah. 
tons of just destruction and, and bodily harm. And you just can't help but be impressed that, you know, there is a world of out there direct to video, nobody directors who consistently deliver like cleaner action sequencing than studios can with like hundreds of millions of dollars somehow. Um, yeah, I mean, we saw it's like I don't even want to mention them because we're doing the top list right now. But it's like we saw Shang-Chi and yeah. there's uh, like it's obviously that's fighting compared to shooting. But just on, based on how they film the action itself, it's incredibly cleaner. Like it's just it's 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 honestly embarrassing that these hundred million dollar plus movies are aren't even getting up to the same standard as as some of these straight to DVD action films. So, yeah, yeah, it's uh it's something else. <laughs> yeah. But uh, my next one is kind of in the, the same realm, just uh, in the sense that I loved the the action <laughs> choreography and stunt work. Uh, Raging Fire, directed yes. by Benny Chan. Uh, this was his last film. Uh, R.I.P. He did pass away. Yeah, he, he, was, he was a guy that I actually was introduced to early on that I didn't know I was introduced to. Uh, he did Who Am I with Jackie Chan, and that mm-hmm. was one of the first... Uh, action movies I saw as a young kid because my grandma just let me rent any Jackie Chan movie no matter what because <laughs> she just thought he was just funny and very family friendly all the time so that was that was funny but uh, but yeah he, he's just a very clean uh, action director he really knows how to move the camera around an action scene and and the stunt work in this movie is unbelievable we have guys just like tackling each other through windows off of two-story buildings and uh, uh, through, like, metal sheets. And it's it's really, really good stuff. Uh, every stunt uh, looks genuinely painful in this movie. It's very, very impressive. And, and you know, you got Donnie Yen, who is just... Uh, an, he's an incredible performer as well as, as an action star. So I'm always a big fan of him. The only thing that kind of got me down on this one a little bit was there's a lot of uh, generic cop story stuff that mm-hmm. is uh, something that I did like about it was how sincere it is. Like they even have a moment where, uh, you know, all the cops uh, come together to uh, stand up with Donnie Yen, who's like going against the chief or something like that. And it's, you know, it's obviously a cliche. We've seen it a thousand times, but there was something about the way that Chan films it that I still kind of found uh uh, heartfelt in, in a way it's it's very cheesy and and overly sincere but uh, yeah does well, a good it, job it, it also kind of harkens back a little bit to stuff that we've talked about on the show before like the heroic bloodshed kind of like procedural drama stuff yeah. from um hong kong um yeah. so that there, there there was a cool element to watching it and being you know even though it's obviously not achieving the kind of emotion uh it was yes. cool to like have the, the main standoff be between like donnie yen who's a cop and this other kid who's a cop or who used to be a cop and is kind of like his former protege and you know he doesn't feel amazing about you know taking him down and when when he does there's like these there's like these flashbacks to back when they were like friends and laughing and things like that. And like, it's obviously it's very cheesy, but it's the kind of thing that like, you know, they, they did try to throw in some sort of like, uh, you know, sort of like a mirror image. Like, could you have been him? And I want to feel for him. And they kind of throw that kind of stuff in that, you know, used to be kind of popular in, in eighties Hong Kong films, especially as well as, you know, doing a lot of the, you know, a lot of the old school, really destructive chaos kind of, 
um, sequencing. You know, there's mm. there's a there's oh, a yeah. lot of really great uh, stuff in that film that has like uh, you know there's like a sewer brawl that turns into a parkour chase, and there's uh, there's there's one part where Donnie Yen is doing a hand to hand fight while driving a car with a motorcycle that is beside his car. Um, there's like so much slide kicking and flipping over desks and knives being shoved into feet and shins being blown out by shotguns and you know, like all the, all the good stuff. It, 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 some of it was a bit too digital looking. I thought like there was a little bit digital blood going on there that I, you know, but it's still very cleanly shot and it's still very bloody. And I, I wasn't, uh, I, I, was kind of impressed that uh, I don't know if you if you clocked it, but like they absolutely stole the big climactic public heist set piece, the gunfight in the middle of a populated street. It was ripped straight from Heat. Um, oh yeah, yeah. And it, sure. it was it was it was very funny uh, watching them even like even do the close ups of the cars just being shredded with bullets and like the 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 one dude doing the. Uh, uh, sudden redirecting of fire with his assault rifle that Val Kilmer does and even carrying yeah. the giant sack of money on them and everything like that. Um, so if you want to see sort of like this, uh, this Hong Kong version of, you know, cops versus crooks with a little bit of like, you know, they're two sides of the same coin slash. There's kind of like this eighties crime romance aspect to their relationship. Yeah. Um, and you want to see that done, but in like sort of like, you know, the sort of Hong Kong destructive chaos action sequencing that includes a climactic fight w- with uh, of knives versus a baton. <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, Raging Fire is, is, is good to check out. It's cool to see, you know, some, you know, someone like Benny Chan who came from another era, you know, get to wrap up his career, you know, doing doing the kind of thing that, you know, he he was really good at. Um, and mm-hmm. even if it's not amazing, you know, it's still, you know, still better than half the action movies that get released, uh, stateside. So, yeah, it absolutely is. Like even given the stuff, that generic cop stuff that I, that usually would really piss me off it, it, to me, it barely weighed it down just because he's so he's, he has such good control of, of the action and, and the film itself just looks good too. So he had a good eye. Um, RIP to Benny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Let's see. What do I got uh, left here? I'm kind of going through the threes, but maybe I should throw in a four that just barely didn't make the list. And one I, I didn't kind of include because also it's it's technically a mini series. But I wanted to bring up Midnight Mass. Um, oh, nice. The yeah, new that was really good. Um, Mike Flanagan uh, show, which you know I think a lot of people had trouble with because he does lean a bit heavily into his uh, his writerly tics of having characters yeah. uh, monologue at each other very unsubtly about what the themes of the show are. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so if that's not, if that sounds time. annoying to you, or you've seen Hill House and that just wasn't for you, you know this probably still is not for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I I do find that you know you know the, the the dude did Oculus, he did Gerald's Game, he did Doctor Sleep, and you know even he's if one I have of the so, better horror directors for sure. I think right I think he is just one of the best uh, horror filmmakers who is actually translating what it feels like to like read a Stephen King novel. Because yeah, a lot of people, you know, sure. have done really great adaptations of Stephen King's work, and not even all of Stephen King's work is like obviously, you know, like amazing either. Sometimes the work does need to be changed to make it even better. Um, but there is something about 
him that he just he really gets into that kind of sleepy sort of small town in this case it's like an abandoned fishing town at the edge of the world that uh you know is is suffering from a financial downturn and sort of environmental uh issues and they are turning in order to faith in order to kind of comfort themselves from that and i think he's so good at turning you know what should be sort of conceptual or philosophical ideas things that you would kind of read at from a distance and translating them into kind of emotional ideas that you experience with the characters. Um, and yeah, yeah, I think, I think it does a really good job of, you know, showing you the way that faith, um, you know, can, you know, that, that it actually can be healing and it can be comforting in the face of suffering. Um, but that it, you know, whether through misinterpretation or through cynicism, that it can also be a tool for, you know, preying on people or creating more, um, suffering. Um, Mm -hmm. so I, I, I thought that it was really solid and I was just kind of surprised to see, you know, like something like this that overtly pulls from things like Salem's Lot uh, by Toby Hooper or The Exorcist. Uh, even on, there's even a tiny bit in the design work from uh, Coppola's Dracula. Yeah, um, for sure. So I, I won't spoil anything. Uh, but the creature effects I thought were actually quite good. Yeah, um, they're very good. And the and I was is I, unbelievable. And, and I was surprised at just you know how kind of literal the story was because you know we talk about so many of these actually about grief kind of horror stories where it's like used as a metaphor and they never really answer what it is that was happening the whole time. I, I was um, very pleased uh, that this went the route of doing something very, um, you know, literal with, with its eventual mystery and, and, and its mood and, yeah. you know, and, and achieving the feelings that it wanted to achieve of, you know, coming to terms with, uh, more mortality, uh, in a very ugly and kind of monstrous, um, kind of way. Uh, and yeah, I, I found it quite somber and, you know, there's even sort of like the sort of romantic psychodrama quality to it. And I think that, you know, if there's any sort of people who maybe are sort of like me and are like a lapsed Catholic, uh, <laughs> I think there's some very cathartic things that Flanagan is going through here because I think he's kind of experiencing, um, something similar. And I think that he is deeply familiar with, you know, these Catholic rituals and myths and, and, and images and, and how violently apocalyptic, apocalyptic they can actually be. Um, which is, you know, uh, not, not to spoil anything, but you know, the, the, the show does not, uh, <laughs> d- does get to some, some extremes that, uh, yeah. make you think of that word. So, <laughs> uh, anyone who hasn't seen it, it's, I think it's just on Netflix and, uh, yeah, that one was, uh, you know, something that if it maybe wasn't a mini series, I probably would have thrown on the list, but, uh, I, I disqualified yeah. for that reason. Yeah. And it's, and like we said, it's a mini series, so it's just a one and done. So it's, it's very easy to just, yeah, it's just six or seven down. episodes or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, my next one, I threw this on the honorary mentions mostly because it was the first time that I watched one of these and I liked it as a whole. So I, uh, put it on here. It's a VHS 94, uh, Ooh. which is the new, uh, VHS movie, which is essentially just like a, a bunch of shorts, uh, horror shorts that are put together and usually strung between one major <coughs> plot line that is usually pretty weak, uh, and just, just thrown in there as a reason to connect all of these different films. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like most of them, I would say that the main 
storyline is probably the weakest, but it's also the less focused on, so it really doesn't matter all that much. Uh, but the five stories that you have here are, I think, quite good, and most of them seem to focus around um, either like body horror or a creature horror, which is always which is two things that I absolutely adore. Um, so I would I would recommend it if you're into horror and if you've liked the other VHS ninety four or, or the other VHSs. Um, I do believe this one, in my opinion, is the best. So I think you might like this one even more. Um, uh, I would highly recommend it. I don't want to spoil any of them because they're all like 20 minutes long, so they're pretty easy to spoil. But uh, it is the first one that I liked as a whole, so wanted to include it. Hell yeah. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to check that one out, but I, I have actually something on my honorable, mission, honorable mentions that might kind of pair with that, which is a, a movie called Dash Cam. Oh, nice. I didn't get to um, see this one, yeah. No, I don't think it came out, and I'm kind of wondering why they're waiting so long to release this. I think Shudder has the rights to this, and I'm I'm really surprised they haven't yet because at at a certain point it is going to be kind of dated. Um, yeah. it, it, I mean, it was it was a tiny bit dated, I think, when I watched it because I caught it at the Toronto Film Festival, um, and uh, it was the new film by Rob Savage who directed uh, that movie Host that we weren't super crazy on. Uh, right. I just thought it was like not yeah. quite as you know there was some some good there were a couple elements of the craft in it. In, yeah. in his direction that I thought were were intriguing. There were some good scares. It but just I, felt I like did, you should watch Unfriended instead. Yeah, you know? it, it just felt like it was too late. Like they were, they thought they were coming up with something so uh, sort of fresh and new, and it, it didn't really uh, do much for me there. Yeah. Um, but and, and this film is is another attempt at a uh, found footage horror film, uh, which is what made me think of VHS. Um, but this one is strange enough. Seems controversial. It is controversial, and and that's yeah. because um, the basic premise is that it's literally sort of like a live periscope of like this woman who is very clearly like an anti-vax, like Trump girl, just like going around. Uh, I don't even remember where she is. She goes from L.A. to London. She goes to the U.K. Mm-hmm. And so they filmed it in London during the lockdown. And, uh, yeah, she, she literally the whole movie is from her point of view as she's pointing the camera at herself and talking and, you know, putting on a live show and just being the most obnoxious person ever, like going into (laughs) stores and being like, I won't put my fucking mask on and like that kind of stuff. Have you seen Spree? I have seen Spree. Yes, it was. It was sort of similar to Spree, but I would say that I think people are going to find this a lot more intolerable just because the main woman, (laughs) uh, Annie Hardy, is I think that she is like a a force. I I don't know if this is a performance or if this is who she is, honestly, because I looked her up (laughs) and she does seem to kind of share some of the same views as her character um, and is also like a musician, like a punk musician or something like that. but yeah, it for me the found footage set pieces were a huge step up from host, um, and even though it does do you know a, a bit much that's kind of you know cliche and maybe not necessarily the most visually intriguing things that like you know it doesn't it doesn't do a lot of stuff that you also couldn't find in like a Blair Witch Project for example, right? But right. the basic idea of what if we did Blair Witch again, but it was from the point of view of this like psycho QAnon Trump girl um, (laughs) is, is honestly, it was enough to carry through a lot of the movie. And I think a lot of what 
people are very upset about the movie or finding intolerable is very much like what the movie is doing. And I, I, I don't really want to spoil exactly where it, it goes to, but yeah. like the concept and how it eventually is explored in detail is insane. And it's, it cool. is it, the, the, the style of it is very, you know, anarchic. It's very obnoxious and vulgar and there's gore gags and very gnarly, like bodily fluid detail. And like, <laughs> I, I, I feel like I have rad. to give him a pass because it, it's also very in the end ambiguous and it, it possibly involves cults. It possibly involves adrenochrome. It possibly involves, Hell yeah, this is, uh, like, like sort of like resident evil style dark. monsters or something like that. Um, so I just got to say like, that is eventually the place that it tries to get to. And I think that this woman, Annie Hardy's performance, who is literally playing herself is as committed and calibrated to the exact kind of like tear your ears off. Like, why am I still watching this? uh, kind of, uh, kind of experience. And honestly, it paired really nicely with something that we put on the list last year, murder, death, Koreatown. Yeah. Yeah. That was a great one, which I think, uh, kind of has a similar sort of QAnon brain madness bringing on, you know, this sort of like found footage conspiracy kind of horror film in in that kind of way. And yeah, where that film kind of got more psychological and ambiguous as it goes on, this one kind of went a little bit more monster movie mode. And anyway, yeah, for, for a pandemic found footage horror movie, which just sounds like the worst thing in the world. I was, (laughs) I was surprised that I ended up being uh, really grossed out and kind of shocked by this one a little bit. So I mean, the uh, way you I, explain, I don't know, I don't know when it comes out, but whenever it does, check it out. Yeah, the way you explain the premise makes it sound like that would be a very tolerable uh, lockdown style uh, movie. It's just because most of them I find just so boring. Like they're they're yeah. they're dealing with the most boring aspects of the lockdowns, and if you're going to dive into the QAnon conspiracy mixed with the, the lockdowns and all of that, that that's exactly what I want to watch. So that actually sounds right up my alley. I'm definitely going to check it out. You made me more excited than I already was. I had no idea it was like get, get, getting to adrenochrome and all that kind of shit. So stoked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So my next one is, uh, I actually just found out about this like, Two days ago, I think, from uh, one of the one of the patrons, and it's called New York Ninja. Uh, technically, it was made <laughs> in 1984, but it was a lost film, and so it was re-released by Vinegar Syndrome uh, just this year. They're always so, doing great work. Yeah, hell yeah! Um, and this one was very cool. Uh, it does, I will say, the the action itself. Um, is a little bit subpar. You can tell that the director and star, uh, John Liu Chung Lang, I believe, I hope mm-hmm. I'm saying that right. Um, you can tell that he has some skill. He, he definitely can. He loves kicking. He's very much, uh, he's, he's very Van Damme with it. He likes to do the thing where he lifts his leg up and kicks like four guys with just one leg without ever it touching the ground. He just loves that cool. move. He does it a lot in the, in the movie. Um, he does do a lot of great wide shots with the action. The only thing is that he does multiple times the, and it, it kind of becomes funny, honestly, it, it's charming in a way. Um, he does the, the thing where it's always a strangely uh, clothed gang that has about eight people surrounding him and they all just attack him one at a time. And it's very obvious that they're doing that because he insists on shooting it in these wide shots so you can see all the action, which is a good thing. 
It's just that it, it also kind of destroys the illusion that you're taking on eight people at a time. And mm-hmm. so there's there's a lot of that. But it, the way that he films it and his uh, his commitment to some of the comedy and, and him trying to be like this badass action star uh, is really entertaining and really good. And it's definitely got that 80s over the top quality to it. Like the, the gangs look just bizarre, like they're just just aliens, almost the way that they're dressing. Um, and they, you know, are saying all these like ridiculous lines. It's, it's about his wife getting murdered. So he's taking revenge. So it's got that death wish aspect to it. Uh, it's, it's got a, a really, really eighties synth score that, that, that pretty, that rocks pretty, pretty hard. Um, so yeah, I would, I would definitely suggest it. It's a, it's a lot of fun. I was hoping to like it a little bit more, but it's still a very strong uh, and you'll get you'll get a lot out of it. He he also implements a lot of cool little uh, techniques to get past his budget. Like there's one part where he wanted to do like a backflip into the trunk of a car and then close the trunk. So what he did was he shot the the car moving forward and him jumping and doing a flip out of the trunk and then reversed the shot so it looks like he's backflipping into the trunk and then closing it. So that like just stuff like that is is very fun and, and charming. So um, yeah, it's called New York Ninja and uh, it was released 1984 but re-released this year after they uh, restored the footage. Yeah, well, because actually it, it never got released. It was unfinished and it was actually right. even un, unedited. So it, it, right. it never Curtis even got like... Spieler was a part of the redirection and editing, I think. Yeah, so they, they somehow found the original footage and yeah, so they, they edited it like this year and put it out. But yeah, yeah, so like that was, it was shot in 84, but it was never completed and never released. So no one ever saw this at all. So it's kind of crazy. It, yeah. it, it's it's sort of like... um that uh, Romero that we talked about last year. What was that called? Remember there was like a oh, new yeah. Romero thing. Uh, uh, the, oh, the amusement, amusement park. park. Yeah. 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 So it was kind of cool to kind of like see, you know, every so often something just gets lost to time and then eventually gets re-released. Cause uh, yeah, I remember watching amusement park and being like, wow, a new Romero movie to kind of enjoy. And th- that was a good film. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I definitely going to check out this, uh, this New York Ninja. Yeah. It's fun. Uh, next up for me, getting close to movies that, um, uh, or at least sort of one of my movies that just barely didn't make the list. Uh, Malignant. Nice. Yeah, Lots of talk about honorary mentions as well. Yeah, I figured it would be for both of us because uh, it was pretty close to mine. Uh, it, it basically probably was the the movie or maybe the second movie that just barely got cut off because um, it's the new film by James Wan. Um And yeah, it's just, I mean, I, we did a bonus transmission about it, so I'm sure people have heard us talk about it, but it is like, anyone who's a patron anyway, but it is like a near perfect merging of the kind of sort of uh, very showy, ostentatious kind of digital filmmaking trickery that Juan's been developing over the course of his career. I mean, shit, even at a, uh, even in his big budget Furious Sevens and Aquamans, he always finds really crazy little, you know, uh, shots to get into those movies. So yeah. in this, it's a movie built of them. It's like insane wide angle lens wonders and like just dolly crane maneuvers that don't make any sense in the space that they're being done in. And so watching him combine this sort of new, very confident style that he has sort of fashioned for himself 
but then returning back to the very unfashionably trashy and like high concept, almost like new metal shock genre sensibilities that were popular around the time that he got into making movies with things like saw. Um, like this, this feels more of like a movie that you would make closer to the beginning of your career because you don't give a fuck. Um, (laughs) and it was very cool to watch James Wan, you know, sort of be able to pull that off. I'm, I'm going to assume because he directed this between making a billion dollars for Warner brothers and doing Aquaman two that they were just cool with letting him burn whatever $50 million it was that he burned on this. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, yeah, do whatever you want because, uh, for anyone making who, us billions. Who, yeah. For anyone who hasn't seen it, I'm not going to spoil too much from it, but, uh, you know, like this, this is here. He kind of fuses, he tricked the people. When you watch the trailer, you would think this is another sort of insidious, sort of polished haunted house movie uh, for a little while, and it's about right. a woman who's you know experienced sort of grief and trauma, but possibly about the loss of her, uh, her her kid, and obviously being in an abusive relationship. And then slowly, it incorporates kind of like these serial murder mystery elements that are just. You know, for some people, they found them kind of laughable because they were silly, but really they're just kind of like these surreal, gory, kind of primary color lit sequencing you'd expect of like Italian horror. It it doesn't look like a giallo, but like the fact that there's like a black gloved killer going around with like a giant sharp object and the murders are done in this kind of grindhousey kind of way. And he does Um, do like zoom ins on the weapons, like that one shot where he like lifts up the, the knife and it's this very, you know, it's gold and kind of extravagant looking. Meanwhile, he plays like the YouTube uh, 24-7 dubstep remix of Where Is My Mind uh, (laughs) over top of it. Like it's so unfashionable and so trashy. It's It's so it's so like mid 2000s horror. It was it was kind of blowing my mind that it got made. Um, And then it transitions at the very last minute into kind of like an action movie version of like a conjoined creature splatter horror thing like Frank Henenlotter, like things that we've talked about on the show, like um, brain damage and basket case. Um, Mm. I won't say exactly how, but if you guys like us really like those kinds of movies, you know, you will probably get something out of this because I don't think these movies blend together perfectly. And some of the plotting elements and character elements are kind of stupid, but they are to me stupid in the kind of way that just makes the horror set pieces as goofy and literal and stylish as they could be. It all feels like an excuse uh, to just like direct the shit out of this thing. And yeah, you can't help but admire a filmmaker who clocks a billion dollars at the box office and then, (laughs) you know, immediately follows it up with like, yeah, what if I made a hilarious version of uh, basket case? Yeah. Yeah. And I did find it funny. So many people thought that this should be taken completely seriously, which I just thought. Yeah. Some, some some people were (laughs) calling it like a so bad it's good. And I was like, it is absolutely knowingly doing everything that it's doing. Like that's moronic. Yeah. It's whether or not you take to that style, but it is apps. You're not, you're not like smarter than the film. (laughs) Yes. So anyway, yeah. Yeah, good good movie. I, I enjoyed that too. My next one is uh, The Beta Test, directed by Jim Cummings and PJ McCabe. Oh yeah, um, I didn't see this one. I'm a huge fan of, of Jim Cummings. I just think his, his comedy style is hilarious. He does tend, at least in the last uh, three films that he's made, he kind of has 
the same character put into almost different scenarios. Like they are different characters the way he writes them, but he has a lot of the same mannerisms and a lot of the same issues that he's dealing with. Um, and he does have a very particular style that he repeats a lot, but for me, it just wor- tends to work. So I, I really take to him. Um, this one is about a Hollywood agent that is cheating on his wife, uh, but anonymously, like when he goes into the room, he is blindfolded and the other woman is blindfolded. It's basically this weird rich thing that he's doing. Uh, and it's it, the whole movie is kind of a commentary on the, the Hollywood scenes specifically within behind the scenes with like the agents. And they do a lot of commentary on uh, Weinstein in particular, of course. There's okay. even a couple moments where Jim Cummings character is complaining that everyone sees them as like sexual predators because of Weinstein. Oh, and how you know how people should feel bad for him and shit like that but you don't it's very funny and and his character is is pathetic and just gets even more pathetic as the movie goes on um but in a very very hilarious way so i would i would highly recommend it it does have uh elements of like horror and thriller (coughs) stuff but with jim cummings he can't help it but also be funny so he uh he mixes the comedy and with that as well it's it's very very good and i don't want to spoil anything um but I found it to be hilarious. So, yeah, I, I didn't check that out, so I'm gonna have to go catch up with that one. It's fun. Uh, my next honorable mention was uh, one that was kind of still on the like you know kind of on the like the middle or higher tier of kind of like threes, but I thought was worth yeah. giving a shout out just because we probably wouldn't get around to we haven't had time to do a bonus on it. Uh, Nightmare Alley, the new Guillermo del Toro film. Nice. Yeah, I didn't get to see this one. Yeah, it is. Uh, I I I have a couple issues with del Toro, which is that mostly that. Sometimes I find him uh, a little too on the nose or cutesy with the kind of um, uh, genre stuff that he likes to play. Like Shape of Water for me was not one of my favorite films of his just because I, you know, I I appreciated some of the elements of it, but I did find it just a little too weirdly kind of like schmaltzy uh, Mm. for for him. I, I think just the way that he... He obviously like he he very romantically is you know loves like monsters and thinks that they should be treated like you know as like little outcasts and stuff and like obviously yeah. you know like we watch a movie like uh, you know there's lots of movies that I enjoy that are like that but sometimes I find he leans a little bit too much into the warmth when I feel like he sure. should be getting meaner with some of the genre play that he does so Nightmare Alley I did actually end up liking more than Shape of Water so oh cool d- d- despite the fact that it it. I do think that this sort of this very digital slick look that he has that's all like, you know, constantly roaming around, constantly sort of shallow focus, wide angle stuff that reminds me a little bit of kind of like how prestige TV kind of looks. I I don't know how suited it was to doing like, you know, an overt sort of noir film like he's doing here. Does it help Um, with maybe just the the uh, the pacing at all? Like does him conning people and the way that the, the camera moves work? in any like cohesive way you you would you would you would think so but it's kind of weird because as you know as a jamie is kind of alluding to i think a little bit because you've already seen the original right this is a remake of a of a film that was also adapted from a book um my 
I don't want to say I'm, I'm sounding so negative already because I'm starting it, but my <laughs> basically uh, I think that it's not quite as good as the original, but I respect that there's an expensive remake of a noir film and a lot of it works. But for me, the okay. thing that he doesn't do as well as the original film is that he doesn't really make the Bradley Cooper character as much of a schemer in the first like hour of the film, almost like in the entire carnival section of the film, you don't entirely get that he's, um, you, you don't pick up on the fact that he is uh, already kind of like a money mindset kind of character who's very ruthless and you know just trying to get a leg up on anyone else no matter what it takes and it takes a long time for that version of the character to actually develop but when he does in the second half of the film um, I was kind of won over by the film because as always with Del Toro really beautiful production design really beautiful location work and the, the tone of this is a lot grimmer and meaner than he usually gets. And it, it really, I think because he's dealing himself with kind of like a kind of scumbag protagonist, he was willing to get a little bit more cruel um, with what he does and what kind of happens to him. And some of it's inherent to the material being adapted, which is just really great material, you know, yeah. about this dude who uh, picks up a lot of tools of the trade uh, working at a carnival and becoming kind of like one of those I, I, I called him in my review Chris Angel mind freak <laughs> that's the kind of shit that he likes to pull off um, but uh, yeah but but ultimately you know he is doing a, a grift and the grift in Del Toro's version um, is laid out as very cyclical and very very violent um, oh, interesting. Okay, and there there is a lot of additional gruesome detail that he gets to add, especially into the finale, and even the way that they kind of introduce Cooper's character and they kind of throw in a little bit of stuff to do with you know maybe a past family that he might have had and stuff like that. That you know, so th- there are a couple elements where they really send home that this guy is a, a, a real scumbag kind of a character. Um, and yeah, I, I was you know I I went to the premiere and uh, I didn't love it, but I was like, do you know what? I liked seeing someone make a really big, expensive, star-studded noir and uh, that it was really kind of grim and violent. Um, And I I really respected that. And also Bradley Cooper and Kate Blanchett are, I think, both quite good in the film as well. So Kate Kate Blanchett, you can imagine already doing the blonde uh, femme fatale kind of dialogue. She nails it. (laughs) And, And yeah, Bradley Cooper gets to go to some pretty dark places. Oh, that's awesome. I definitely want to see Cooper do that. So sweet. Yeah, I'll be checking that one out for sure. Um, my next one is uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League. Oh, yes, this would be on mine as well. Yeah, this one. I Who knew that we would yeah. put a superhero movie? I mean, the Justice, the first one. I mean, I think I toot it the first time. But if I rewatch that thing, it's probably a one. Honestly, I have no idea. I know I really strongly dislike it, but. The, uh, the changes that he got to make with this were pretty incredible. Uh, and just honestly, the fact that it's a 242-minute superhero movie directed by Zack Snyder and it's after the original release happened and they let him do this is just astonishing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think it's really going to happen again, at least anytime soon. So I do think it's something to behold. And... I just couldn't believe that he was able to actually make me give a fuck after I spent so many years not giving a fuck about any of this. Um, It was it was it was really well done. To be honest, I don't I've got to say I don't remember like a lot of the details right now because I didn't get to rewatch it. And it is 242 minutes long. 
yeah, but I remember being rewatch. just genuinely impressed by it. It looks fantastic, even the black and white. Uh, and it's also in um, what's the format again? Oh yeah, it's in it's in the uh, Academy ratio or whatever. The, uh, <laughs> right. It, it, it looks like four or three on your, I'm honestly, it, yeah. it, it, it makes the images look fucking huge. Yeah. Um, yeah. it's crazy that it all worked. I just, I just couldn't believe it while I was watching it. So, um, if you haven't yeah. checked it out and you have the time, cause it is a, a big one, I, I would recommend at least giving it one shot because, <laughs> uh, it's, it's just something else. It's something I don't think we're ever going to really see again. So yeah, it, 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 it didn't all work. Um, and it, it was too long, I think it still could have been uh, yeah. <laughs> trimmed down, but the <laughs> fact that an assembly cut that big and expensive and like exists at all. And the fact that it is actually, you know, you can tell that it's been vividly imagined by, you know, a filmmaker with a visual sensibility and it is tonally consistent. Yes. Um, crazy. Yeah, it, 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 it's it's really amazing that you can watch Joss Whedon's sort of like Frankenstein garish romp version of the film and then watch this version and you can just see what Warner Brothers lost confidence with but like wrongly did and you yes. can just see Zack Snyder just take a huge victory lap with like genuine patience and atmosphere <laughs> and kind of emotional pathos to it as well. So like... Yeah, if you want to go, if you want to see the difference, I think someone did make... A YouTube video and I, I can't remember the exact title but it's essentially just like showing you the finale both finales from Joss Whedon's and Snyder's and it's just yeah. unbelievable what Snyder uh, does compared to, to Whedon like really the more unbelievable thing is what Whedon does because it's just so atrocious but if you yeah just to see those differences I think would at least maybe sell you on the one sit this giant uh, superhero movie yeah well and and the fact that they what they they cut like some of the best character stuff from his movie like they cut the cyborg <laughs> character entire entirely out of joss whedon's thing when his like sort of like blurred tragic backstory stuff like uh, and and how he was kind of created into kind of like this almost universal monster like backstory that he has yeah. uh, and relationship with his dad and everything and like yeah it, it just it, it's kind of blows you away the decisions if you watch both you'll be blown away by the decisions that the suits made on right. on that film and like why they made them like it doesn't everything they chose to cut was like the stuff that was like incredibly stylish and some of it you know some of the character work was even really strong which isn't necessarily something you can always say about a Zack Snyder film so Yep. 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 Definitely worth checking out. Um, for me, we got, we, I guess we got to start wrapping this up soon. eh? we, we yeah, have a I'm long list done. of honorable mentions. Yeah. I'm almost <laughs> done too. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to throw in, uh, some stuff that I'm going to hit the stuff for me that I disqualified. <laughs> so stuff that might okay. have been in like the top 10, but like I didn't consider it sort of genre E enough. Gotcha. Um, one for me, the new Paul Thomas Anderson licorice pizza. Nice. Uh, this is an amazing film. And honestly, I wished, you know, I, I went back and forth on it because it is the kind of film that at some point we probably will talk about sort of like a seventies romantic kind of comedy film in kind of a way. Like the movie looks and feels like a movie of the era that we would talk about, right. but it, it really is more of a drama sort of, quasi coming of age film mm -hmm. um and uh yeah i i know jamie hasn't got a chance to see it yet so i'm not going to spoil anything um <laughs> but yeah essentially it is the relationship between a 
uh, 15-year-old boy played by uh, Cooper Hoffman, who is Philip Seymour Hoffman's son, who's really, really great in the film. And he is sort of a child actor who is trying to get his foot in the door into adulthood because of the demands of the industry. And he's kind of adopted this kind of entrepreneurial kind of mindset. And he's so he's constantly like starting shitty businesses and hanging out with his friends. And uh, one day on picture day, he sees this uh, this this uh, Jewish woman that he is really taken with played by Alana Haim, one of the Haim sisters from the band Haim. And she's and 25. Years. Is she? She's 25. Wow. I guess it's a bad movie. Yes. Immediately. It's a terrible movie. They must not be uh, making any Not to wade into age whatsoever. gap discourse on, on this one. Cause you know, uh, I, 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 I do get looking at the premise and kind of raising an eyebrow, but if yeah. you, everything, every eyebrow raise that you might actually do is basically, uh, you know, thrown away with when you actually watch the movie and the entire movie is a yeah. very one sided pursuit of a 15 year old boy who has a crush on an older girl that he saw at school, which has never and happened before. Which has never happened before. I've definitely, you know, you know, when I was 15, I definitely didn't look at a 20 year old woman and go, hmm, well, hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, I looked respectfully and I said, no, Jamie, she's too old yes. for you. Yes. And, and, and there's, there's a really interesting thing that PTA does where he, you know, he, he depicts her as kind of like uh, a 20 something who, you know, who's more in kind of like the boat that, you know, a lot of people find themselves in nowadays, which is that, you know, they're kind of in a little bit of a stunted adulthood where they haven't quite made the transition right. where like they're no longer yeah, 15, but you know, they're still, they, they haven't reached the point where they, they have the real adult job. She still has a lot of time. She still lives with her parents. She still has a lot of time to just hang out with friends. Yeah. And so these two characters kind of meet in a weird middle ground where he's 15 and wants to be 19 and she's 25, but still kind of acts like she's 20. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> um, and the two of them, you know, kind of, it, it's very interesting watching them both kind of, um, sort of push and pull on each other and simultaneously kind of try to grow as people and kind of retreat into some of their, you know, sort of worse tendencies. And once again, it's PTA. So the visual confidence, the, yeah. uh, is, is just unparalleled. And it, it, it is this very episodic comedy of, you know, Alana retreating into the childish antics of this teenager because neither of them quite, you know, he doesn't understand the world of adults and she doesn't really want to be involved in the world of adults because as you see throughout the entire film, they run into all these various different characters and how just terrible the adult world is. It's kind of like it's the two characters who kind of like want to remain children in a way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I won't spoil exactly how, but like Bradley Cooper shows up speaking of Bradley Cooper delivers an amazing performance. Like uh, I think uh, I can't remember which Safdie is it. Uh, I think Benny Safdie is in it. Benny Safdie is the one who shows up mm -hmm. briefly. Sean Penn <laughs> uh, nice. briefly uh, in the film in kind of a, a very sort of kind of like dark kind of ugly role. Um, but yeah, uh, didn't really feel like it, it needed to be, uh, in, included on the list, but anyone who hasn't had a chance to check it out, uh, there is, it's, it's very sort of nostalgic and romantic film, uh, made around the time that PTA was a kid because it's literally a movie about wanting to retreat into your, um, childhood because the world's kind of a shitty place and his movie is very sweet and he kind of gives these characters a chance to do that rather than just stripping that away from them or something or making them realize the harsh reality. He says, what if these two characters could just kind of hang out for a while? Yeah. <laughs>
Yeah, I can't <laughs> wait to watch it. Heard nothing but good things. Yeah, really well done. Uh, my next one, and I've only got a few left, so we're almost done here, uh, is uh, Zeros and Ones, directed by Abel Ferreira. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if we're going to see this one on Josh's list. so We will be silent. seeing this later on, on, on my list, so I will be silent. <laughs> nice, nice. I'll, I'll just, uh, for me, um, I really loved the style. Uh, the digital photography is, is really, really awesome. I love that they take advantage of the, uh, the empty streets, um, and it just looks like a desolate world. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's got a lot of really great ideas. I just wish I understood those ideas a little more. Uh, I was incredibly confused by the end of it and I just haven't had a chance to rewatch it. So I didn't, I I really don't like to give a movie a four unless I feel like I've really connected with it. Um, Mm -hmm. so, but, but I, you know, I can't deny Ferreira's skills. The guy's unbelievable and such a galaxy brain. Like, you know, this guy's going off about, uh, digital terrorism and god and just it's 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 unbelievable it's it's just crazy so i would he's he's had a really fun late career as a guy who uh you know got started making like really really filthy exploitation movies and then kind of got into making you know get got onto the festival circuit got a little bit of money making you know sort of like gangster movies and stuff and now he circled all the way back to the film festivals where he's basically just making like completely hard to follow yeah. art house genre movies that you he know gives no fucks about it he, it's great. no he gives no fucks he, he totally goes just wherever his he he feels whatever he's feeling at a given moment he's like i'm gonna make a movie about this and i don't care who gets it <laughs> yeah and i i have nothing but respect for that so th- this was one that i want to revisit just to see if i can get some more uh some more understanding with it and also i still have to revisit his uh uh, Siberia, which I yes. which I really liked, and I almost forwarded that one too. So I think both. Of those yeah, that I was on my it. list last year as well too. A- Abel yeah. Ferreira, he's got a spot on the list that if he can keep pumping them out like he is. Hell yeah, yeah, he's he's great. <laughs> so I I would recommend it. Uh, just just understand that you're probably not going to understand a lot of it. Um, it's it's to me it was mostly about the the feeling that it gives you while you're watching somebody be like waterboarded for some discernible undiscernible reason. Uh, and, and the water they're using is like muck from the street. So it's got cigarette butts in it and stuff like that. Like that's the type of image images that you're, that you're dealing with here. Um, and you're like as confused as everyone in the film of why anyone's doing what they're doing. It's, it's, it's chaos, but it's really, yeah. Ethan, Ethan Hawke shows up at one point to even basically say that he didn't, he didn't even call it a script. He was like, I didn't really understand it, but I, I, I immediately felt something from it. Yeah, uh, is how I, Ethan Hawke described it. So and that I was like why he took the role. His last line too that he has, where he's because he he introduces the movie and uh, and ends the film, and it's actually like a personal message from Ethan Hawke himself. But he has this one line where it's like, "This is also a part of the movie," and then he turns it off and he's filming it on a digital camera inside this room that actually doesn't yeah. look like his room. It looks like he's like <laughs> connecting the dots on a wall, <laughs> like a yeah. crazy detective guy. So it's it's very it's very cool. Hell yeah. Uh, for me, speaking of kind of like a sort of an, an old guard filmmaker trying to still make genre films, but now on the f- film festival circuit, one that just barely didn't make the list for me was a Benedetta. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, me too. The new pa- 
Paul Verhoeven uh, film and obviously Paul Verhoeven, God of the show. We've talked about so many of his movies. He's gotten so many fives on this show. Uh, and, and this was a four for me. It was, it was quite solid, but it was on yep. kind of the lower end of um, fours for me. Um, I think a little bit because despite the fact that again, this is him applying his sleazy brand of erotic violence uh, to like basically an art house, lesbian historical drama. Yeah. Um, I did think that, um, you know, while it was it was it was very good, it it would slightly disappointed me personally, just because I did not find it as blasphemous or disturbing as uh, the devils, which is maybe yeah. a hard thing to live up to. Um, but it does seem like it's also channeling that movie. Like it feels like it's very much it's very much cribbing from it. Yeah, yeah like it's the, so. the, all of the stuff with the perversely sexualized Catholic iconography the violent and disgusting abuse of power by the church, uh, even down to specific shots and plot elements. I mean, yeah. even the elements of repress, sexual repression and the plague and medieval torture devices, everything that this movie does can be found in the devils, a movie that came out in the seventies. Yeah. Um, and, and it is done slightly better. So <laughs> yeah, I definitely felt more, um, for out of out of the devils and the experience of Oliver Reed's performance and everything like that. So yeah. th- that is why it didn't just it just didn't quite make the list um, for me. But I feel like if my main issue is that, you know, like uh, it you reminded know, is, you is too that, much of the devils. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just it's a bit derivative of like one of my probably like a top Favorite 20 of movies. all time movie yeah. for me, a movie that I have a poster of on my wall. Yeah, like. You know, like if, if that's my main issue, like this is still, a, a, you know, a, 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 a quite good film. And it did have a yeah. neat little subversion in some of the character work that I liked where it's, you know, it's not like uh, a decent man kind of being burnt to a crisp for the crime of uh, sexual liberation. But it's actually a woman, Benedetta, who's involved in the church, actually using sort of the religious institution as a way to consolidate her own power and kind of weaponizing it for her own benefit. And in the, the, he tries to leave it quasi ambiguous, whether she really believes herself to be a prophet or whether she's trying to make herself look like a prophet so that she can sort of climb the ladder a little bit, um, and do some of the things that she wants to do. Um, and yeah, and, and use eventually use it against her oppressors. And they do do a bit of a reversal where instead of the Catholic church burning, you know, sort of like the character who is deemed as, you know, possessing all of the nuns to have sex with each other. Um, in, in here, they actually do get a little bit of a revenge against the actual church itself and some of the male members of the church who, you know, are very hypocritical and actually spreading the plague and spreading disease and, you know, things of this nature. And, and it does get very violent when it does. It's a, it's a little digital looking the violence. Um, mm-hmm. but I appreciated that, you know, for, for a festival crowd, for a festival film, it's the kind of, you know, he definitely shocked some people with some of the imagery, uh, in it. And there's some great, you know, again, just a woman looking at Jesus, very sexualized, uh, yeah. and, and, and the whole thing about looking at Jesus, like not having the genitals and then Jesus actually like showing up and being kind of like this fantasy version. Who's like an action hero briefly and stuff like there's some ridiculous <laughs> Paul Verhoeven stuff going on in here. That's, yeah. you know, really quite still, uh, well done. So I definitely really liked this movie. Uh, but it, it definitely was hard in my mind to separate it, um, from the devils. So for yeah. th- that, that's why it just barely didn't make the list. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. Uh, my next one, uh, and I don't know, might, we might be seeing this on your list, uh, The Matrix Resurrections. 
I, uh, yes. Okay. But uh, so for me, I I did really like it. I I am still in a very complicated place with it. Uh, mm-hmm. But I do love quite a bit of what they what they did. Uh, the script in particular, I think, is probably the strongest part of the of the movie. I think the mm-hmm. ideas they do between with Neo and Trinity, for the most part, are really, really, really good. And it's the th- those parts were the parts that I felt the most. Honestly, it wasn't like the well, the action to me was quite disappointing, to be honest. But the the mm-hmm. stuff between them was I felt like electric every single time they were just sitting down and talking to one another and kind of trying to figure out where they were in their new place and reminiscing about the past, but not knowing that they were, I just, all of that I thought was fantastic. Um, And so I am going to be revisiting this one. It's, it's something I want to tackle again. It's just, you know, I I do, I I probably am suffering a little bit from what I think a matrix movie should be. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm still not completely convinced though, that that is unwarranted. So I, I'm still fighting with it, but I did want to give it a shout out because I do think that this thing is very honestly brave for what it, for what Lana tried to do here. She's very brave. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so yeah, so I'll, I'll give it shout out right here. Hell yeah. Uh, yeah. For, for me, the last things here, I'm going to speed round just a couple here because I don't have a lot to say about them. Yeah, um, I've only got one more, I think so. Okay, yeah, so I'll just speed around these real quick. Uh, one for me, that uh, I, I did kind of want to give a short shout-out to The Voyeurs, which is something yeah, we covered. Yeah. And if you, if you want to hear more about it, we did a bonus transmission about Beanie it, baby. which which has some unfortunate kind of like Fifty Shades of Grey kind of pop polish to the way that it looks. Yeah, I love um, But uh, I had to respect that there was a, an attempt at a genuinely really trashy and explicit like sexual fantasy obsession thriller like this. And if you look at the read anything by the director, he very clearly did his homework and watched a lot of things that we love, like things like Body Double was something yeah. that inspired him a lot. And there is some perverse visual sequencing to it. And yeah, uh, you know, it's a you know, maybe you just really like it for the obvious reason that someone had the idea of putting Sidney Sweeney in a movie about voyeurism. Um <laughs> So that was a film that I really enjoyed. Um, last minute um, performance shout out, Matt Damon in Stillwater, Hell something yeah. that I've thought about uh, a lot. Very weird movie that uh, is weird because of the genre movie aspects of it, where it's about a falsely convicted murder case, uh, you know, is kind of flat and kind of bloated. Like the genre movie element of it doesn't work super well, but the the actual fish out of water character class drama where it's just Matt Damon you know, uh, very endearingly in plaid and jeans and Oakleys and trucker hats, just driving around France and doing handyman tasks with his French girlfriend and, you know, eating at subways and staying at best Westerns and that kind of stuff. Just watching this kind of character who, uh, you know, try to slowly adapt to a, a, a different kind of life that he doesn't really think that he could have had or that he doesn't deserve. And then, you know, you know, kind of having the more genre elements circle back at a certain point and maybe kind of take this away from him. Um, you know, you, you, you really do kind of feel that in his character. And yeah, so the, for me, Stillwater was one that I'm surprisingly thinking about a little bit more. And I think if it was directed by you know, it had another pass at the script and was directed by someone like maybe like Clint Eastwood or something. Yeah. Um, I think there would have been a really, really great genre portrait in there of kind of like a rash, stubborn, outmoded kind of guy genuinely learning how to change. It almost could have been a Western or something, the way that the character arc works there. Um, 
Uh, the Night House, which is uh, one that I think I got off of Jamie's list. That Rebecca uh, Hall, right? That's the Rebecca Hall one. Yeah, yeah she which, has a lot of fun in that. I liked her in that. Yeah, it, it was pretty good, I think, for one of these. I think she has depression kind of haunted house dramas, yeah. Yeah. Um, which which sometimes don't really work. Uh, but Hall, Hall is really good in the film. The film is shot, you know, in a way that looks really nice. And it does have some really super silly reveals that... Yeah. Um, despite the fact that the metaphor is kind of banging you on the head, uh, it was still, uh, it was, it was entertaining. I will say the, the, Mm -hmm. the big reveals in the finale and everything. Uh, so those are the last of my like three star ones. Um, and my last two are just disqualifications. Uh, so West side story disqualifying, Um, even though we covered it actually on the show. Um, (laughs) I honestly don't think it, it, it probably would have still been in the honorable mentions anyway, but, uh, yeah, I, I definitely, you know, uh, Steven Spielberg got to make a musical. That is the pitch for the movie. Um, it's, (laughs) it's, it's amazing. He's one of the most naturally gifted visual, you know, uh, filmmakers alive. And, you know, this was a movie that he's had in his head since he was a child and you can tell. And, uh, if you haven't seen it, it's definitely worth checking out for that reason alone. There's a couple changes he makes that I didn't love. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's, there's a couple that he did that are amazing. Like honestly, there, there are a couple songs that he may, may even do better. Um, so, uh, uh the, uh, the officer Krupke, his version of that song. Amazing. Um, and yeah, definitely worth checking out. And then, uh, my very last one is, uh, Memoria people are kind of counting this as a sci-fi film because I think, I think technically it is right. Um, and for anyone who hasn't or is unaware of Memoria, it's the new film by the Thai filmmaker, um, a pitch upon, um, I'm not even going to try the last name, unfortunately. Sorry, everyone, but I just, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm trying to speed through. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, this, uh, this one was about a, uh, sort of, what do they call this person? A horticologist or a, some, or, or a botanist, someone who's really into, uh, she's, uh, she, she's in the plants and she's like a farmer. Yeah. Um, and Tilda Swinton is visiting in Columbia and visiting sort of like these, these friends that she has who are musicians and archeologists and everything like that. And, uh, she just literally starts hearing this weird sound. And that is the majority of the movie is okay. Tilda Swinton it's hearing like this sound, thing. this like loud bang that just kind of occurs suddenly. And she's the only person who can hear it. And she thinks that she's going crazy. Um, and you, the, the movie is very kind of slow and kind of sleepy and kind of gets you into, and then it's suddenly interrupted by these bangs. And it very much wants to kind of get you into the experience of this character of just kind of being confused and kind of relaxed for a little while. And then suddenly just like hitting you with these very loud acoustic and psychological vibrations. Um, And the movie just the way that it's shot and the way that it's paced, it's really, really beautiful. It has a lot of very ghostly kind of movement to it. It has these very alien sort of sound design elements to it and very graceful and beautiful looking sort of like landscapes. And yeah, this, if, if you're willing to meet the movie at what it's doing, because you have to know you are getting into like some slow cinema kind of stuff. Um, it is quite an experience and I got to see it in the theater and I was very, I mean, it's actually, it's only playing in the theaters. So, um, hopefully it, 
plays for other people. And I, I do think it's probably going to leak at some point before uh, and, and people will get a chance to watch it at home. But they they very controversially were saying that they were only going to play it in theaters because that was how they wanted people to kind of like pay attention to it in that kind of space because it makes a lot of sense to do it that way. Yeah. But yeah, watching watching Tilda Swinton just for two, uh, two hours basically just walk through this place of where history and memory and dreams kind of just like all combine and you're not sure what she's experiencing or if she's even awake. And yeah, it, it really does sort of feel like this organic flowing sort of stream of, uh, uh, ambient sensory overload. Honestly, it's a, it, it, it's a movie that's like cool beats to study to. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I, I found it really, really beautiful, and it feels like the director is really, really reaching to be like, you know, there are things that you will never understand in the world. There are things that are impossible to translate experiences that, and, and a, a universe so big that you might not, you know, ever be able to understand what's happening to you. But it feels like, you know, he's trying to sort of come to terms with that. And I won't spoil it, but the last shot of the movie is a huge what the fuck. <laughs> And and it is the most science fiction element of the film. And it really does recontextualize what you're watching. And uh, I I want I almost wanted to include it because of the last shot. But uh, ultimately, I didn't. Gotcha. Well, yeah, I I can't wait to check that one out. I've heard very good things. Uh, I've got actually two that I'm just going to toss in here. And then uh, are are you where is that your last one? That is me. I'm done. So you can just do it. Uh, So the first one is heard she got married. Uh, directed by Charles Roxburgh. Uh, apparently, these guys have done a couple uh, low-budget movies that are worth checking out. They're, the other two are Freaky Farley and Don't Let the River Beast Get You. It seems to me that they kind of make these uh, low-budget uh, comedies in their hometown. Uh, they seem to be very talented. The The acting is very amateur, but it kind of creates this... Uh, this, this different charm to it a little bit like because people are still very sincerely giving off their performances so even when you can tell somebody isn't a professional uh the lines are usually very funny and so the the way they deliver them can honestly give a new spin to it just because a professional actor w- would probably refine it a little more and sometimes when you have the amateur actor uh, reciting the the comedy lines it it, it gives off a, a, a kind of new energy to it a little bit um, and it's uh, it's very good. Also, the the music is fantastic. Basically, what the the uh, movie's about is a musician that had a chance at some major success, uh, but he for for some reason I can't particularly remember, but um, he didn't take that that chance. And so now he's kind of this guy around the town that people knew that he was going to be a big star, but never quite made it. So he's got a very strange reputation for his fame. Um, but there's some great sh- uh, scenes where he's actually just playing music with his uh, friend who his new friend within the film who he suspects might actually be uh, a killer or just so- something's up with him. Um, I believe he's played by the guy. I think it's Ryan uh, Desmarais, if I'm saying that correct, but he's he's very funny. Uh, really good at, at delivering some of his lines because he's acting like this very sincere and nice uh, neighbor and just some of his lines are just so overly uh, happy the way that he delivers them it's it's mm. it's quite funny 
Um, so yeah, I would, I would highly recommend it. It's uh, 75 minutes. So really easy to watch. And for the low budget it is, I thought he did some, some really good photography. Uh, there's a lot of shots of him just walking around his old town and you can tell that, um, at least I think it's his, his actual hometown. Uh, you can tell that he had a real love for it, or at least has been thinking about these shots for years. Um, he, he really knew how to capture, uh, his, his city. So yeah, it was really good. I would, I would highly recommend that one. Uh, it's heard she got married again. And then the other one I just wanted to mention, just cause it has some elements of movies that we've talked about, uh, before is uh, Spencer by Pablo mm. Lorraine starring Kristen Stewart. Um, the reason it is a lot of the time, uh, a drama, uh, about, uh, princess Diana, but there are elements of, um, like, uh, the shining and there's some like paranoia in there. And every once in a while they throw in, uh, some, some horror elements. Like, uh, there's this scene during dinner where she starts to throw up these, um, like, uh, I think it's like pearls or something like that. I can't specifically yeah. remember, but it's, it, it, there, there are elements of, of horror and thriller esque things in here that I, that are really appreciated. And some of the camera work, uh, was very much taken from, uh, the shining. And I like just how they applied that thought with princess Diana in this like giant palace. I thought that worked really well. Um, and just uh, to give a shout out to Kristen Stewart, I it, for me, I haven't seen Personal Shopper, which I've heard is also very good, but uh, I thought that this was her best performance that I've personally seen. A lot of the time mm. with Stewart, who I do like, uh, I just find that she has these mannerisms that she can't quite escape, and I see her within a lot of her roles, even though she's still very good and charismatic. With this one, I felt like I she really transformed into somebody else, and I don't see that entirely from her all the time and so i just mm -hmm. i was just kind of blown away by that so yeah so that would be my last one yeah yeah well i think we should get into the top 10 and actually there's one last thing i want to mention which is not really an honorable mention but it was actually fixing something that accidentally happened last year okay which was that uh we didn't get around to watching it so i felt like sort of similar to bad trip we should maybe give it a shout out here uh the empty man Oh hell yeah, yeah! That movie. Somehow, so Jamie sick. and I did not get a chance to watch it before we recorded last year's episode. So technically, this is a last year movie, and it's, so it's not on the list for this year. It should yeah. have been on the list last year. It would have been but though, it, yeah. If if we had seen it, it probably would have been top three um, for <laughs> me last year. It's an amazing combination of like a sort of David Fincher esque digital dark procedural film mixed in with like this creepy pasta cosmic horror quality um and it, it, it's directed by someone who has been on a lot of david fincher sets by the name of david Pryor, um who since i've actually met and he is a very lovely man nice. um and yeah i just wanted to give uh his film uh, a shout out here because we somehow didn't get to do it last year and i felt really really bad after finally watching the movie and basically having to readjust my top 10 on letterbox for that year and like fuck yeah, yeah. <laughs> i was like that absolutely would have made the list yeah, that. So, I mean, when that came out and we started going nuts, we, on we it, did it an hour-long bonus transmission on it. Yeah, um, yeah, it was it was uh, empty man fever up in the Patreon. So, yeah, and, and and it seems like it's kind of spread to to a lot of people. And the movie yeah. now has you know it, it went from having like a two point nine on Letterbox to having like a three point two now. So, Excellent. if you haven't got on, if you haven't become the empty man, if you haven't been infected, if you haven't yes. started spreading it, uh, look into it. Go check it out. Please do. Uh, but yeah, that being said, now 
because we've already gone so long, we need to get into the top 10. So let's do <laughs> yeah, it. we'll we'll try not to digress too much on these because I guess it is. That honorable mention round was like an hour and a half. <laughs> we can't help ourselves. We can't stop. Never stop. All right. Well, now that we've spent an entire episode of the show just doing honorable mentions, <laughs> let's finish the second half of the show and uh, count down our official top tens, which, uh, by the way, for anyone uh, not over on the Patreon yet, uh, there's going to be a couple films you're going to hear us talk about here today, and you're going to be like, man, why did they only spend like 10 minutes on that movie? I would have liked to hear more. Probably because we've already talked about the movie for an hour over on the bonus transmission series over on the Patreon. So... You know, just another shout out, patreon.com slash Lezoids podcast. If there's, you know, there's a couple movies we bring up here that you're like, man, I wish they would have talked about that for longer. We probably already have. Yeah. Um, so and check into that. we might <laughs> do later if we haven't yet. Yeah, so some we'll we might see. do later if we haven't. Uh, but, right. but sometimes when we put the year to bed, sometimes we're like, all right, back Done. to the new movies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we'll see. Um, but yes. So let's jump right into it here. Let's start the best genre movies of 2021, starting with number 10. And I'm already cheating, brother. I have <laughs> I have two Beautiful. sitting here side by side, but I'm going to do a very short session on both just because one of them was my number 10 and I liked it being my number 10. And then a movie came out that would have kicked it off, which was The Matrix 4. And I was very nice. sad about kicking this movie off, and I just didn't feel right kicking it off. So that's why they ended <laughs> up uh, being sharing a spot together. So uh, my number 10 is The Matrix 4, or The Matrix Resurrections, as well as No Sudden Move. Um, nice. So they they share the same spot. And, and Matrix 4, for me, um, I found it to... Uh, you know, I do think that as Jamie kind of mentioned in his honorable mention that it does suffer a little bit comparing directly to the original film, uh, which is something you can't help but do because the movie does it itself. It constantly shows you shots from the original film in the actual film itself as part of the text. And obviously it's very notable that the film is not choreographed by Hong Kong uh, stunt legend. And the, and the shooting style is very different. It is developed with Lana Wachowski and looks a lot similar to a lot more similar rather than the original Matrix trilogy to something like Jupiter Ascending or something like Sense8, their Netflix show. Yeah, yeah. So if any of that bothers you, I think it's understandable. <laughs> um, yes. But for me, I found it just really, really cool to see an artist return to something that they made decades later and, you know, for to have seen the artist not just change... Um, you know, on a personal level, but on um, like a, a a formal level, on a filmmaking level, someone who has really come into their own and it wants to do something else. And it was very interesting watching someone who very clearly was like, I have moved on from this section of my life. And here is me wrestling with that on film kind of for you and developing that into the story itself, making something so idiosyncratic and meta and very much about the experience of aged characters experiencing this deja vu that they are in the film. I think Nick in our Discord called it uh, Lana Wachowski's new nightmare. Yeah. Which I think is really spot on and really kind of gets at what is trying to be attempted to be done here. Um, and I think it is destined inherently to just kind of piss people off, uh, which, you know, some, some of it, understandably, some of it a little, I just like, I don't know what you want. Um, but 
it, it it's very interesting to you know see this film kind of done in this way and be done with the very typical Wachowski hard on her sleeve, unsubtle, nerdy, completely fueled by the belief in the power that you know uh, that love can threaten systems of power, which is something that's so corny and <laughs> goes through so much of their work. Uh, but I love it. It, it. Honestly, I felt more Speed Racer in this film than I did The Matrix. Yeah, for and sure. I think that that's possible. That, that is something people just don't want, which uh, yeah. fair enough. But for me, that was I found it a really, really engaging experience. Um, and I found the movie very strange and weird. And uh, I think that, you know, it's just kind of amazing. I think I made a tweet about it that, like, we have a franchise th- like this that was directed by, you know, sort of like the same people throughout the entire thing. And not a single sequel is basically like the film that came out before it. Like Reloaded got in a lot of trouble because it was so different from the original Matrix and people wanted the original Matrix back. And then Revolutions, people were like, oh, fuck, give us more of Reloaded. What the fuck is this? Uh, (laughs) um, And I think the same thing is happening here. People are going, oh, no, give me more Reloaded and Resurrections over this. And I think that, you know, uh, I, I do have a feeling that, you know, some of this is for a lot of people you know, on, on subsequent watches, the, the commentary and the fact of its existence on where movie making is right now versus where movie making was in 1999 and watching both Wachowski deal with it, watching her characters deal with it. Uh, I, I think it's, I think it's going to age, uh, it's going to age better than people are suggesting it will. And also there's just really cool shit in it. As Jamie mentioned, the stuff with Neo and Trinity, um, I find really, really moving. Yeah. And I find that's the strongest part for me. Yeah, that, that that stuff specifically. I mean, even like the, the first third of it, which is all like Neo, yeah. which is literally the, 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 the Matrix having incorporated the existence of Warner Brothers in the Matrix into its fabric and literally yeah. like doing this very sort of like self-aware thing where like trying to trick Neo into thinking that he's actually like a game of the year designer. <laughs> um, I, I loved seeing his like six monitor setup uh, and everything like that. Um, <laughs> and yeah, having, you know, trying to basically have him believe that, you know, the, the matrix never really happened or actually just, you know, all of this, this memory that he has that feels like it's a, they're trying to convince him it's actually a story that he came up with. Um, and so, yeah, just watching the filmmaker who came up with that story wrestle with the fact that, you know, her, this thing that she created is out into the culture. It's been ingested and exploited and now algorithmically sort of like reflected back out into the world in a way that's completely uncontrollable and completely like not you anymore. Cause I don't know if you heard, but they, they were going to make this whether she wanted to make it or not. Yeah. They just gave her first th- basically first pass they say we're gonna make this do you want to be the one to make it so i also i think i I think this movie makes more sense under that context where she came into it as like the mate i don't own the matrix warner brothers owns the matrix so what is my feelings about that and if you i think neo's journey that he goes through here makes a lot more sense if you view it through that kind of lens um, and despite the fact that the action, not Hong Kong level stunt, amazing stuff, like you can tell that the movie is intentionally not focused on that in the same way that the other, the other movies were like same, yeah, same with revolutions, me, honestly, I, I do get it. 
Yeah, because 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 with with revolutions, it doesn't have you know as a set piece as good as the highway set piece and reloaded, for example. It doesn't have anything like that. And and I, I think that this is sort of similar, where it's just it wasn't really the focus. And I did think that there was some some cool visual stuff that takes place in this, even if it's you know very different kind of stuff. Because I don't know about you, the multiple frame rate shit in this kind of blew my mind. The uh, the the thing where they shot it with two cameras and they basically in post like slice them together so that uh, some characters could be going in like super clean, pristine slow motion while other characters were in this kind of like faster, choppier frame rate. That oh, was actually yeah. an in-camera effect. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, that I liked the uh, uh, the visuals of that. Yeah, I really liked that. Yeah, so like that 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 kind of stuff was really cool, and you know even some of the fighting though. Again, it's not Hong Kong levels and 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 stuff like there. For me, it was still competent. Like it's still levels above, you know, the kind of shit that you would see in a Marvel movie. Uh, even though people are kind of like throwing that, uh, you know. So I think some people are complaining that uh, the Matrix has been Marvelized, but I don't think that that's entirely true. Um, I think there's half truths. I don't want to get into you think the, so? the <laughs> rabbit hole, but like, yeah, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to get too crazy into this, but the, it's just the, uh, um, uh, the comedy did not work for me. Tonally. I felt like it was just, uh, in that sense, like marvelized a hundred percent. And I understand that. I think that kind of mm. wraps up with her meta critique that she's doing as well with Warner bros being involved and, and the executives making a lot of those jokes themselves, not Neo. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, like I get, I get that. It's just that when you throw those jokes in, it just does change the, the tone of the movie automatically, in my opinion. So, gotcha, um, gotcha. But, but, yeah, I, I, I didn't feel that as strongly. I definitely felt that it was like baked into the industry commentary stuff, and that the, 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 the sort of is. cynical way that the Matrix has been ingested <laughs> and then shot back out by a studio. A hundred percent. I agree with that. And I like the overall critique of it. It's just that when you apply it to the film, it's still mm-hmm. something it's it, that's what I have to now watch. Like, I don't I don't need executive Marvel jokes in my <laughs> Matrix film. I just I don't want to feel like I'm shitting on it because this is your top 10 here. That's why I didn't want to, like, start start going too hard but uh i just felt yeah well like, we, we just haven't had a chance to talk about it because we didn't it's yeah. one of the few we didn't do a bonus transmission on right yeah yeah so i just felt like the comedy just kind of swiped the uh, the mm. tone that i was maybe it's well, just that, well, the tone well, that i'm used to but it's just like yeah. at the same time i'm just i don't like this tone in general so that, yeah it, that, that that's fair but i also wasn't talking about comedy i was talking about the action at that point um was what people were saying was like oh that like, was marvelous. like 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 really bad yeah. no um, i don't think i don't think um i i mean i will say I, I do think it's subpar i don't think it's good uh but i i don't think that it is as like it's like shang chi is way worse 100 mm-hmm. <laughs> percent not even close like that kind yeah, of like thing. I like I, I didn't I didn't mind the 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 fight between Neo and uh, Jonathan Groff who's playing like the new version of Smith and I actually liked the new performances by the characters who were playing old characters like Groff I think is is really good as uh, Smith kind of like echoing his performance in a way that I found intriguing and then uh, um, Yaha who's doing um, uh, Morpheus 
he he gets to do like a really strange version of Morpheus, which is really cool yeah. because the, the the premise is that like Neo, it, it's Morpheus translated by a computer program version that he has developed. Like it's not the real Morpheus; it's like this fake version of him that's like his friend. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that that kind of stuff was was really cool. But yeah, we won't get too deep into the Matrix because I we might I still do a bonus transmission on it. I might yeah, maybe, maybe we'll rewatch it and talk about it or something like that because I know a lot. It is kind of the talk of the town right now but I do think that it's flawed and I acknowledge that it's flawed but I do think that a lot of the pros and weirdness of it outweighed a lot of the flaws watching it for um, me and I I do think that despite the fact that it is this very hyper digital kind of sentimental mess of a movie I think that it really does effectively blur the fiction and reality that it's trying to do between both the industry and the existence of the matrix in our world and just the matrix as it as it is and all the iconography and yeah. you know it, I, I, I don't even know how you would come back to the matrix after after the matrix changed what action movies were for two decades you know yeah, I mean, like, in a um, way, the, the thing is, too, with it is that I didn't even really want this movie. So, mm-hmm. and, and then when you find out that Warner Bros. basically told Lana, like, we're making it regardless, mm-hmm. uh, I totally understand why she's doing what she's doing in this movie. And that part of it, I respect the hell out of it. It's just that, yeah, you know, it's, it's, just it's, it's definitely a very don't personal work with me film. in a Matrix film, uh, especially mm-hmm. having three prior. That that say what you will, they are all different, but they have a very consistent tone that is not this movie. Sure. Um, and so I I just uh, I think that's what it was. But I do love when I'm watching it the middle finger that she's clearly giving to the industry and just and 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 kind of like and and I don't mean this as a negative thing. A certain type of fan that had certain expectations that that mm-hmm. I do have a respect for. Um, it's just kind of similar to how I feel with like Spider-Man three, for instance, where it's like, you Mm. you can tell that Sam Raimi, I think was doing a similar thing in a way where he was kind of giving a middle finger in certain moments to the execs that wanted specific things. And, and I like that movie, but there's once again, it's just because of those tonal changes that he does in order to flip the bird, it, it changes the film for me and how I perceive it. And then having the two films or in this case, three films prior that have this kind of locked in tone. It just, the curveball doesn't always work for me. That's, that's, I guess what I'm, um, yeah. well, we can dive well, more into it another time. <laughs> yeah, we'll dive into it another time, but yes, matrix four just barely snuck into my list. Cause yeah. I, I didn't, and, and because I, I didn't want to kick off uh, no sudden move, which is the other one, which was the new Steven Soderbergh film, which we kind of caught very early in the year. It was one of like the first, I think, fours that we gave out. I think we did a bonus transmission for it as well. So I'll be kind of brief on uh, it as well. Sure. But it is a really yeah, cool anyway. little uh, deceptively bleak kind of uh, period noir crime caper kind of film. And it's it's basically a bunch of, about a bunch of low-level schemers from their point of view trying to climb up the uh, the, the uh, industry ladder and trying their best to sort of like navigate this sort of like criminal game slash system that's been, uh, you know, over the course of the mystery of the film, we learn that it's been distorted and warped to the advantage of 
people in power and people who have um, corporate power specifically and, and are maybe unseen. And uh, basically, you know, they're, they're the house. It's, it's, it's all of these uh, small time thugs basically pointlessly wrestling against the fact that, you know, the house has the advantage. Um, and I found that that, you know, uh, once that's sort of revealed over the course of the movie, I found that to be really strong. And there's a lot of really great performances in it, like Don Cheadle, Benicio yeah. Del Toro, uh, Ray Liotta, Brendan Fraser, the God, hell yeah, um, Kieran Culkin, Julia Fox, like the, the uh, Matt Damon shows up for his his regular Steven Soderbergh cameo. <laughs> um, so yeah, I I, I found that uh, you know despite the fact that the movie is very tonally playful and kind of funny, and the characters have a lot of personality to them, the uh, the sort of larger portrait um, being played reminded me uh, kind of a little bit of the Coen Brothers. You know, yeah, where there's uh, there's these these characters are kind of trapped in a system that they can't see entirely, and then they over the course of the movie they kind of get a gl- uh, a glimpse of it, and cool just to see someone do you know again sort of uh, uh, you know go back to to noir elements, guys in the suits and the hats with the guns, Hell yeah. uh, doing 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 little heists, you know that kind of thing. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> a lot of fun. Uh, well, speaking of uh, guys in suits and doing I, not a heist, I guess, but like espionage. Uh, my number 10 is Cliff Walkers. Uh, hey, by, we can we can actually scratch two off here because it's my number nine. Oh, that works. That works. Uh, and that's directed by, why don't you say it so I don't fuck it up again. <laughs> Jang Yamu. Nailed it. And uh, so, yeah. Sort of like Abel Ferreira, director who as long as he keeps pumping out a movie a year, uh, he'll probably be on the list most years. Yeah, he's got such a control of his style. It's unbelievable. Like the, Basically with this film, the, the reason it worked for me, because I'm not entirely sure how historically accurate it is, just given <laughs> the uh, the the country behind it like because i know that a lot of these have to be approved by uh z so it's just that sometimes that can get a little muddled when they're trying to tell a history based on you know the country so Mm -hmm. but what i will say is that the the craft itself is unbelievable i mean he's just it's such a uh well-controlled and kind of slow-paced in parts uh thriller uh, it's essentially about a group of uh, people that were trained in the Soviet Union coming back to um, uh, rescue some people that were captured, and they they use it. They use a unit seven three one as one of the um, institutions that they're uh, helping people out of, or yeah, that they're helping people out of. And if you haven't looked up unit seven three one, it will ruin your day. But it is oh boy. essential after dark reading, in my opinion. Um, but it is atrocious. Like it's it's a full wiki page of just some of the most horrendous war crimes that you could ever read. Like it's it's unbelievable what they did in in those institutions. And the film does kind of dive into a little little bit with showing the like uh, shows like shock therapy on some of the the, the prisoners, yeah, yeah. and it shows um, water. I think it shows a little bit of waterboarding and just a, a bunch of of stuff. And and quite honestly, the film, if it wanted to, could have gone even deeper because Unit Seven Three One was truly like hell on earth. Uh, so I, I did kind of appreciate that they they dove into some of that history. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, overall, it's just very very well composed and he even throws in a little bit of his uh, martial arts knowledge within the movie too which you wouldn't expect just given that it's like a fedoras and, and uh, uh, 
pistols kind of gun, uh, kind of film. But he has a moment, for instance, in a train where there's like this this three part uh, struggle that's going on. Somebody's being strangled, and then the other person is be- that's strangling somebody is also being strangled by someone that's doing it with a ribbon or, or uh, some type of scarf. And in order to uh, make it tighter, the the person does this like spin move on the ground to and then pulls it even even more. And it's very stylized and almost martial arts esque. Uh, and it was just cool to incorporate that into a into more of like a crime uh, espionage film. So yeah, a lot, mm-hmm. just a lot of really really good stuff in this. So I would highly recommend it. Cliff Walkers, and this was a last minute addition too. So yeah, this really was a last minute me. watch. I was I was glad I remembered to uh, <laughs> to throw this one on because it came out. I think it came out like just as theaters were reopening for us. And it only played in like a couple theaters, so we didn't. I, I wish I had a chance to see it in a theater because some of those images were really pretty. Yeah. Um, and and very, uh, you know, despite the fact that it's very slickly made, because it's you know it's 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 Jang Yimou. We've you know he was on the the uh, top twenty nineteen episode, I think, for Shadow. Yep. Which yes, was obviously was. incredible, and obviously this is the guy who directed Hero and you know House of the Flying Daggers and Raised the Red Lantern. You know, incredible Chinese filmmaker, and yeah, watching him get to do like sort of like noir pulp like this was really cool. And the and that it's like a combination of like because he does you know he does you know uh, he does kind of uh, wuxia action films and stuff like that. So yeah. there is an action element to it where it's kind of like a, a man on a mission, something like where Eagles dare was something that I thought about a little bit, but yeah. then it is really gruesome in terms of what Jamie was mentioning. Like, you know, the, the fact that this has like torture and execution sequences, like the history is really gruesome. So it doesn't yeah. let that off the hook. And so in order to do that, it does this really brutal sort of cold, very snowy wartime paranoia and loneliness of something like uh like army of shadows for anyone who's seen that um i still got it so it's a it's a movie that you know has you know it's got the guys in fedoras and it's got the double crossing and it's got the you know very noiry shadowy alleys and you know train fights and car chases i I love some of the pov shots like the pov shot of them uh landing in the snow with their parachutes um yeah and the the other pov shot of the city that they do yes. the downtown area. And so it looks like straight out of the thirties. It's beautiful. Yeah. And there's a POV shot of them like crashing into a telephone pole and watching it fall and stuff like that. Like there's, there's some really, really cool, um, gunfights and that do incorporate a couple sort of, uh, very sleek martial art elements into them as well. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think this was like really, really well done. It, it, it was a little convoluted and sometimes a little hard to follow. Yeah, the I was exact a little confused, plot. but I was but like I that think, with shadow too. Like he, he does find, I find he either, cause he doesn't write these, right? He finds scripts, I believe. Um, uh, good cue. I'm not sure, but regardless, he did write this one apparently, or oh, he's okay. a, a co co-writer on this one. Okay. And he shadow. Seems to, he just loves like really deep and rich material because I find, I find a lot of his movies to be hard to follow just in the sense of its overall plotting and, and character decisions. It, it's he, he, he likes a lot fault, of characters with hidden agendas. That's and, it. Right. Yeah. You know, sort of 
fucking with each other. Yeah, a lot of um, double crosses and and uh, political strife and stuff like that. He's very much into politics and war yes. right now uh, with yeah. with his his current film. So because of that, there's a lot of baked into it that I feel like even if it was like just a normal Hollywood film, I would also be confused by some every so often by like the yeah. why exactly did he make that choice or you know sort of anything like that. Yeah. Um, but yes, if you just want to see like what is essentially a very sort of noiry, dark pulp kind of espionage war movie, uh, with like really cool little action sequences when they pop up and a really sort of unforgiving sort of cold snowy vibe to it. Uh, that honestly reminded me of things like the spy who came in from the cold. Yeah. Um, definitely. that, that the ending of that movie was something I thought about while watching this movie a lot. Uh, also I thought about filmmakers like Hitchcock and like Fritz Lang and other people like that. It's really cool to see uh, Jang make something in this uh, sort of like visual department because I don't think he's ever sort of like popped these references before. You know, he's always mm-hmm. trapped making sort of like wuxia films, not like World War uh, II films like he is here. So I think that that's, that's really cool. And also there is some Tarantino-esque like spaghetti western twanging in certain parts too that I thought was kind of funny. And yeah, yeah and, I, and I found the, it does have a... Despite the attempt at something kind of nice near the end, it is quite uh, uh, mournful and bleak and kind of brutal. Yeah, uh, you do see people going through hell to get there. It's that kind of uh, story. Yes, yes. But yeah, check it out. Uh, Cliff Walkers. And that was your Uh, nine? That was my nine. So what's your nine? Okay, my nine is Old by M. Night Shyamalan. Ooh. So I, I really liked this. I, it, most of these I unfortunately didn't get to rewatch. Um, so like I said, I think in the beginning of this episode in general, s- some of these would could probably be swapped on any given day. But uh, um, right now, old is, is number nine. And I just I M. Night Shyamalan, man, he's getting such a bad rep this uh, these past couple years. And even with Glass, which I think was at least more well received it's still for a lot of people in that like low three territory it seems um and i just think that he's probably the most underrated director out right now uh he just always gets shit on and this is just another example of a great idea with an interesting execution that people just dismiss as bad like just because it's something that i think they're not used to and the ideas are maybe a little silly but he's he's always diving into those ideas with such uh curiosity and and um bizarre choices that i i kind i find him endlessly intriguing um even when i think something is kind of maybe weird and that's not or, or funny and that's not necessarily the tone he was going for he still finds a way to create an interesting commentary with it and uh, mm-hmm. I just I, I hate that he's been shit on. So that's what I wanted to start this little <laughs> this little review with was just more. Uh, we need more support for M. Night because he's one of the only guys making like original movies and um, uh, and has his own style along with it. So I just I just absolutely love this. But r- basically, it's uh, if you haven't watched it, it is about a family that goes on to this beach and it seems as if within this beach it has the power to make you age uh i think it's within 24 hours so you live your entire life within one day and the movie basically just takes a look at these different scenarios where it's like what would it be like for 
uh, teenagers to grow up in that amount of time and have to deal with pregnancy within an hour of your of your lifespan. And and uh, it's it, it it and then it even gets into stuff like body horror, where it's like uh, it deals with the healing of the body and how much time that would take. So now that, you know, if you break your arm in, in a different way, it used to take, you know, a few weeks, maybe a month to, to heal back up. And now it's only going to take five minutes. So if you don't set that thing into place, it's going to get a little wacky. And, and I just like that he incorporates uh, those ideas and he, he keeps it fresh. So, yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed this movie and it, it got shit on right now. It's at a two point six on Letterboxd, and that is a crime. Um, yeah. So please go see it if you haven't, and I hope you like it. Hell yeah. Yeah, I, I'm going to remain quiet because uh, we might hear about <laughs> it a little bit later nice. uh, as well. Because, yes, I, I think that Jamie and I are both on on team M. Night yes. uh, deserves better than he receives right now. Absolutely. Uh, for So that was Jamie's number nine. For me, my number eight is uh, probably the most expensive movie on this list, No Time to Die. Nice. Uh, the new James Bond film, the last outing in the Daniel Craig uh, series. We did a really big bonus transmission on this, so I'm not going to say like uh, too, too much that um, you, uh, you guys probably haven't already heard, but I found this to be... Uh, surprising i mean like i liked all the daniel craig bond movies so yeah. i think jamie and i are maybe like the one of the the weird people on the boat of like all of these movies were were good yes and that this was a fitting way to um to finish them off and you know i i really liked uh craig in his tenure as bond i i think he had a really cool sort of blunt force quality to his sort of physical demeanor um, but then he also brought a lot of sort of vulnerable woundedness uh, to the character. And I think that the movie, uh, this movie really, really went back to the original Casino Royale, sort of the animalistic brutality of this character versus his kind of, you know, his emotional instability that he, you know, maybe would prefer not to have. And uh, I think it brought a lot of those elements really, really um, full circle and basically crafted this like, this uh, really cool, you know, sort of, you know, big expensive action movie where you have uh, Fukunaga, who is, uh, you know, this gamer junkie, this Xbox junkie, <laughs> and he's doing like full Metal Gear Solid action set pieces. He's got these gorgeously composed, you know, sort of like location images. He's spinning cameras, doing cybernetic eyeballs, the tactical running and gunning. Uh, you know, there's, there's, you know, bodies crushed by cars. There's POV shots like attached to objects and cars while they're moving the huge stunts and explosions, magnets, nanobots, everything you could want out of like a classic kind of bond. And it's fun even has a giant layer that combines like Eastern minimalism with like the texture of sort of like a wet concrete, like nuclear missile silo almost. Um, the action choreography I thought was despite it was cleanly shot, but also it, it had this kind of like very grounded, dirty quality to it. Like that staircase one where it's just like the sheer determination <laughs> of yeah. him to get up those stairs and like using bodies as meat shields and just like destroying people cars, flipping in like single dolly pans across the Norwegian forest. Like there's so many set pieces in this. I can't even talk about them all. The Cuba set piece is amazing. So lots of really, really great set pieces 
all sort of doing kind of a bit of a victory lap on all the skills that James Bond, you know, uh, has as a, you know, a, a state sanctioned killer. Um, but you know, then also kind of weaves in this, this very, um, this very moving, I found sort of what should be a love story, but that's also kind of a spoiler alert breakup story, which I won't say exactly why. And the whole movie kind of does have this very, um, sort of melancholy sort of, uh, you know, funeral aspect to it because we do know that this is Daniel Craig's last time playing the character. And you can tell that he put all of his energy into this because that this dude has wanted to kill himself for like five years. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you, you get that kind of weariness out of his performance. Um, but also you can tell that he really put the effort in because he was like, I knew, you know, he, he was, he, he basically is the one who decided what the story was going to be. He was the one hiring and firing writers. So it was a lot of this was up to him where this was eventually going to go. And I think that he chose a really, really, you know, expressive, psychologically engaged place to take this character, which again, I'm, you know, trying to avoid spoilers. So I'm not going to say much more than that. But after you've seen the film, we did a full bonus transmission where we went full, full spoiler free. And we, we, we kind of talked about a lot of the ways that they really properly mirrored uh, this franchise and Casino Royale and how, you know, they, they, they did some stuff that was kind of, uh, kind of painful and beautiful in terms of character work, which is not what you necessarily expected of a movie that cost this much money. And, oh my God, I don't even know how I didn't mention this, a franchise movie that ended. Yeah. What a miracle. That's probably a huge reason why it ended up on my list because I, I re I, I rewatched <laughs> yeah, it and I was like, man, it's so fucking amazing to see one of these movies actually have an ending. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's like, I don't even know if we're ever going to see that again. That's going to be like the rare thing. I think it'll be the only franchise that ever actually ended. We'll yep. see another Bond in five years, but it'll at least be different. Exactly, exactly. But yeah, so No Time to Die. Uh, nice. Probably one of the biggest movies I'm going to include on here, but yeah. check it out if you haven't seen it somehow. Yeah, my, that, that one's on mine too, just a, just slightly lower. But, okay, uh, okay. So we'll uh, come back to it. My number eight, and I did debate on putting this on here, but I felt like it had enough uh, setup and kind of... It, it on purposely subverts the genre a little bit. So I, I, I am going to include it. It's a uh, pig uh, directed by uh, Michael. Yes. I forgot to mention this would have been honorable mention for me. This just barely didn't make the cut. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's starring Nicholas Cage, my boy. Uh, yep. So loved that. But what I, I really appreciate about this, especially how it was kind of advertised to people, which was like, you know, you have Nicholas Cage. We all know his, his reputation, uh, and you know that he's going to be getting revenge for somebody that took his pig. So instantly your brain starts to go to like the John Wick, but with Nick Cage. And uh, you think that this thing is just going to be over the top, crazy cage levels and all that. And what they end up doing is kind of subverting that expectation a little bit and making it more about this journey about loss and grief um, and pretty at by the end a little bit acceptance of that grief uh and it's um i felt like it was a really beautiful movie you have a nick cage performance that isn't over the top he's not trying to do his cage thing he's actually a a, a really composed character that's trying to that that has very clear motivations and isn't leaning into the expectation of what you think 
this kind of movie was going to be. So I just, I, I really appreciated what it ended up being. And, uh, I also like its commentary on how he's, it's almost like, like, it's sad that he's become this recluse, but in a Mm -hmm. way it, it, it feels as if it's, it's what he found happiness in. And so Mm -hmm. I don't want to spoil anything, but you know, as, as it goes on, it definitely does get very sad. Um, especially as you kind of unravel his, his past and, uh, some of those aspects of it, which they never really fully answer, which I like too. It, it kind of just gives you uh, little moments that when he talks to people about his past and he kind of just, y- you learn about him through those, those moments. So, uh, yeah, yeah, if you haven't yeah. seen it, I'd highly recommend. Um, and if you're not into the whole like super cage thing, then this actually will be something for you because he's, he's very composed in this. Yeah, he's he's doing something really really special in that movie. The only downfall for me was that I did think some of the uh, uh, sort of like underlit handheld mm, kind of yeah. style to it. I did wish there was a little bit more of a sense of style to it. It, it, it definitely felt like a lot of films that I've seen uh, play the indie festival circuit, like the Sundance yeah. circuit and stuff like that. Yeah. But beyond that, like on on a writing level and a performance level and what it's going for, it it is really cool to see what is inherently a revenge premise just yes. like fully subverted in the way it is to be just emotionally explored rather than physically explored. Um, yeah. And I think it's and, smart to get somebody like cage to do that and then bring it into a more grounded story because that's, that was the sell at first when no one knew about really what it was. And I think that's very smart. Yeah. They were like, yeah, someone's fucking took his pig. He's going to go kill them now. And, and instead yeah. the movie is calibrated to be, a lot quieter and mournful and kind of strange and honestly kind of anticlimactic because Mm -hmm. the, that's the experience of this character who is going on this kind of revenge odyssey, but you know, it, it ends up being not about his revenge odyssey and just about how he has changed as a person, uh, through the process of, you know, how's how his artistic passion has kind of been drained from him. Um, both by the industry and by heartbreak. Yeah. Um, so if that at all sounds intriguing to you, I would definitely check it out. And Cage, yeah, Cage, you know, he he is as toned down as the movie needs him to be, and it's it's really something special to watch him to watch him navigate. Uh, you know, a, a different kind of performance in that way. Yeah. It was a, it was a lot better than the the actual Mega Cage movie that came out this year, right? Which I, I what was that? What was that one called? Um, uh, g- uh, Prisoners of the Ghostland. Prisoners of the Ghostland. Yeah, we yeah. talked about that because we're huge Cage heads, and we talked about that. We were like, yeah, Mega Cage, and I just remember being, man, this is like one of the first times I've been disappointed by Mega Cage. Yeah, in it's because the and also it was. I mean, I think we discussed that half the movie didn't kind of go with cage on that. So it's just, it starts to not work the moment you don't yeah. have the matching energy there. So yeah. Yeah. But pig definitely worth checking out. Yes. Oh yeah. Um, for me, my number seven is, uh, the last duel. Nice. The, uh, the new sort of, uh, medieval sort of historical drama with like a little bit of like, a you know, it ends on a big action set piece. Oh yeah. So that was why, I, <laughs> why I was able to, uh, uh, qualify it for this a little bit is that yeah. it, you know it, it definitely has a you know a, some some disturbing elements to it. it does and, have some uh, good uh, uh, sword play though during the war scenes. They're they're a little bit few and far between, but there are they are brutal. They're gory though, yeah, yeah. 
yeah, R- Ridley is really good at that um, that kind of uh, very muddy, ugly, on the ground kind of uh, swords uh, play, and the kind of uh, really sort of like the the weight of how heavy the armor is, and the way that a sword really gets into someone's jugular and just like sprays everyone around him and stuff. Like yeah, that kind of stuff in this is is really solid when it appears. But for anyone who hasn't seen it, the very loose premise is um, that. Uh, it, it is literally about one of the very last or maybe even the last recorded uh, duel to the death in yeah. in the courts of France under King Charles VI. And it is uh, Matt Damon as uh, Jean de Carouge and Adam Driver as Jacques Legree. Uh, thankfully, because Ridley is a god not doing French accents. <laughs> yes. um, <laughs> He was like, fuck you. Just uh, pretend they're French. Like, yeah. whatever. <laughs> they're in France, you know it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the sort of inciting incident and the reason behind this duel, which they, you know, they, they open the movie by kind of sh- setting up that this duel is going to happen. Um, it is happening because Adam Driver's character, Legree, uh, rapes Matt Damon's wife, Marguerite uh, Ducarouge, played by Jodie Comer. Um, and there is a really cool sort of structure to this film, as many people have already pointed out. It's essentially Rashomon. Um, yeah, with a little less ambiguity. A little less ambiguity, yes, <laughs> I, I would say, just because they they do um, they they essentially show you Matt Damon's the what happens in the film from Matt Damon's point of view. The second chapter is from Adam Driver's point of view, and the third chapter is from Jodie Comer's point of view. And the first two sections are written by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Yep who also appears in the film in a really great slimy role. <laughs> and um, then uh, Nicole Holof Center mm-hmm. uh, writes the last third from Jodie Comer's point of view. And yeah, the, the, the movie basically just traces and navigates the sort of the minute psychological points of view that each of these characters have in the way that you can kind of distort the way that you see the world. And that allow... For example, in, you know, the world of, uh, you know, this specific time period anyway, that allow these men to think that they are romantic, charming (laughs) warriors uh, and dealing with codes of honor and, you know, where where a man is a, a man is as valuable as he is to his king on the battlefield. And, you know, this is the way that they view the world when actually it is a lot more bleak. Uh, and sort of mundane everyday reality for women that there is no sort of codes of honor that, you know, she could be assaulted by her husband. She could be assaulted by this guy. And there is like no sort of mode for her to get any kind of justice um, for that, that she is essentially treated by everyone as petty property. Um, And even the justice that is uh, uh, had is, is done between the two men. Like she just has to stand there and hope that he defeats uh, a driver. Yes. Yes. And and yeah. And essentially like whether she lives or dies is, uh, and dies painfully by the way, like being burned to death and you know, everything and her child being killed and whether, whether uh, she lives or dies is all up to this very ugly, hyper violent pissing contest between these two guys who just are technically fighting over land. Right. Uh, which is, you know, which is like really, really crazy, uh, you know, 
thing to experience emotionally. So when you get to the Jodie Comer section of the movie, you're just kind of like you, you kind of know the basic plot beats of what's happening, but her perspective does really solidify a lot of what it's doing. And the movie deals, there's a lot of really great character subjectivity where you're constantly returning to moments throughout the film that characters kind of remember just vaguely differently. Uh, one of my favorites is the one where uh, Matt Damon and Adam Driver already have beef, but they're deciding they're going to squash the beef and they go to each other. They go to each other's party and every single section, it changes who is the one who says the line that's like, let us, let us uh, finally move forward. And like, I can't oh, remember right. exactly what the line is, but yeah. in, in Matt Damon's version, he's the one who's like the gracious one who's trying to be <laughs> nice in Adam driver. It's him. And then in her version, it's neither of them. It's like one of the squires or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so there's a lot of really great engaging sort of character subjectivity that you get as with the three part structure. And Ridley realizes it, I think, with a lot of like misery and weight to it. And a lot of it is just waiting for this duel to eventually happen and and finding out the logistics and everything. It just gets more and more absurd as it goes on that you're just like, how does no one see that this is what she sees, that this is how the world operates and how horrifying it is and how unbearable and almost existential the actual fight is? Like, How much is at stake for her? over these two guys just beating each other up in a pile of mud by the end of the film is insane. And you're, yeah, it's very, very tense final fight. Very, very gruesome. I won't say exactly what it is that that takes place, but I will say that it is disgusting. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And he definitely leaves you despite the fact that, you know, there might be a little bit of like uh, catharsis built into what just happened in the real history. Uh, You don't really feel it. Uh, you 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 are definitely left sitting there in the in the mud with the corpses, just being like, "What the fuck?" Yeah, I'm glad she's here? not going to be killed. I guess. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, also, this movie uh, made one of the best press tours I've ever seen by Mr. Yes. Ridley Scott. So. <laughs> yeah, Ridley it's Scott just, just telling journalists, "Fuck you, fuck you, fuck you." Yeah, or just telling people's like, I love. There was one where they said uh, some guy was like. When I was watching it with my buddies, and I thought it was pretty obvious that her point of view was the truth, but they were thinking it might have been one of the other two. And Ridley, he was like, "Are you fucking like, Are you joking? A fucking idiot!" Yeah, like it's just, <laughs> it's just great. Anyway, Ridley's the king, but uh, that that one will be on my list a little later. All right, cool. Your number seven. My number seven is one we have mentioned: uh, "No Sudden Move." Uh, by cool. Steven Soderbergh. I just I had an absolute blast with this. It was uh, also great to see a uh, big boy Frazier on the screen. That was awesome. Yes, I just love him so much. Chunky and, King. Yeah, and and he's he's bringing it, man. He's he's coming back. I, I hope to see more of him. Uh, but everyone in this is is fantastic. I just love the like you said the the kind of Cohen esque uh, stupid criminals that that are seemingly good at their job, but just seem to keep fucking up more and more as the, as the movie goes on. Um, also, I like just that it's not even necessarily sometimes uh, characters being bad at their jobs. It's just the people they choose to trust is also a, mm-hmm. uh, a factor in their, in their demise. So yeah. there's a, there's a lot of fun to be had in this. Um, and I, don't have too much to add. I just, I just thought it was really well put together. It did remind me of a Coen's movie. Uh, and 
it's just got some some great performances and some really funny writing too. There's a lot of really great jokes that even uh, kind of that kind of uh, go lean into the grittiness a little bit. Like there's one really funny moment where David Harbour has to beat up his boss to get a document um, and he doesn't want to do it. And he's trying to tell his boss that he doesn't want to do it. So as he's like punching him, he's just like, I don't want to even do this. And and there's a lot of comedy involved in that. So they, it's not just like gritty. The violence is very quick and gritty and people do die. It's um, bloody yeah, but it's, when they die. Yeah. But there's almost like mm-hmm. this ironic twist to a lot of it that I, that I really appreciated. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's my number seven. Yeah, because for a lot of it, it's like a lot of selfish characters, like yes. just like meeting, you know, the sort of like accidental fate almost. Right. Yeah. Where ev- everyone's agendas are kind of clashing up against each other. <laughs> yeah, and I love that. It's just it always leads to uh, uh, really fun pacing. Like most of those movies are really fast paced, and this one is no exception. Like it, it really just as soon as it starts, the the entire scheme is uh, entertaining endlessly, and every character's. Um, inclusion in that scheme is very interesting as well. Uh, a lot of good crisscrosses and all that. So, yeah. And, and despite the fact that it's old fashioned, it, it has this really sort of unique kind of like modern look to it as well. Yeah, where it does, the digital it's, stuff. Always, yeah, it's always doing that like digital fisheye kind of look to it almost, yep. which is really Huge like distorting, distorting the peripheries um, mm. in a lot of really cool ways, which, which I think makes a lot more sense when you realize that these care, these are characters with tunnel vision, essentially. Right. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent would recommend. Yeah. But yeah. Cool movie. Uh, for me, my number six is one that already got brought up and it is zeros and ones. Nice. The new Abel Ferreira film, which, uh, I think that it is kind of incredible because the poster makes it look like a direct to video action movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I love it. It's hilarious. Um, it is not because <laughs> it is very much not. Um, but then the actual film is him continuing this sort of like fest film festival art house exploitation run that he's currently doing. And it's watch amazing to see a dude at, you know, be 70 years old and just be who he is and still finding ways to not just like change up, you know, the style of his films, but to basically just like completely restart from the ground up and do something totally insane. Uh, cause this film, I don't know if you looked into it, uh, Jamie, this is shot by Sean Price Williams, who oh. is the cinematographer for good time. Awesome. Yeah. So is- this is Abel Ferreira watched good time and was like, yeah, I want to make <laughs> something with this guy. I want to make something fucking crazy. Yeah, I could imagine him fucking saying it. Yeah. He's like, you dig? We're <laughs> going to make something fucking crazy. Um, and yeah, and this th- this very much replaces Siberia, which had this kind of very internal kind of expressionist kind of style to it that was very yeah. much about, you know, you know, uh, Abel Ferreira feeling like he's kind of reached it to the end and using Willem Dafoe as kind of an insert for him a little bit and having him go through this kind of, carnival of all of the memories that got him to his isolation and the sort of like uh then merging it with kind of his sexual impulses and some of the violence and the history and it, it's very nightmarish uh, yes. and it's very expressionist and which this is very much not it's very interesting watching like that was a very sort of psychological sort of internal uh kind of film and this film is very much external this was filmed during the pandemic in italy where he was living at the time and it takes place in a fully like masked up Rome that's like basically like empty streets entirely on the ground level. 
and it's essentially this very noisily textured vision of like a geopolitical espionage slash yeah. surveillance kind of film. But it's it, as Jamie mentioned, it's it's very difficult to follow because it's been narratively and stylistically uh, essentially abstracted by the paranoid psychology of the character that Ethan Hawke um, is playing, who is this character who is literally just someone who traffics in information. So yeah. he's literally like capturing things on video and giving them to people or literally delivering sort of like mail, almost basically a mailman. <laughs> and I believe he plays uh, like a twin brother too. That's on the opposite political side. Or something like yes, that. Yes, there is there is Which a over, uh, like even complicates the image a little bit more because you have two Ethan Hawks that are doing two different things throughout this crazy film. <laughs> yes, because he he is pl- he's basically working for like the fascist state, right. and then his brother was sort of like the revolutionary twin brother, right? Uh, and yeah, it, it's literally a movie kind of like split like that. You can tell that Abel Ferreira is in like a crazy place right now. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it, it's really cool to watch him just make something so sort of fresh and digital and about sort of like the literal ruin of the old world and watching Ethan Hawke just like, you know, go around this Italian architecture doing just these very disgusting things it's honestly like a mix of like a digital diary war film reminded me a little bit i don't know if you've seen it jamie of brian de palma's redacted mm, no i haven't i don't think which I is have. which is his sort of quasi quasi remake of uh, casualties of war but updated for like kind of like the iraq war era and when it came cool. out like fox news was making uh like saying that brian de palma was like the most anti-american person who's ever lived and <laughs> because in the middle of the iraq war he did a movie about you know like these american soldiers who obviously like rape a woman and right. the, but but the style is what i was reminded of because it's done on like this almost mid 2000s camcorder kind of aesthetic kind of that it that it look that that movie kind of has and that was what i was thinking about where it's kind of like this uh video diary war film mixed with like an a real apocalyptic kind of vibe plus documentary images of this like real currently in a lockdown italy yeah and so all of that stuff was really really cool And yeah, I just found the movie, I found it very filthy. It has a a lot of sort of political bleakness and futility to it. And this sort of, I love movies that have this kind of stylistic sensory overload this kind of film has. And it is designed to overwhelm you to the point where you don't know what the fuck is happening. It's like digital grain and drone images, glowing screens everywhere. There's like digital video images of the soldiers themselves videotaping them, waterboarding people in like this, like neon colors. There's expressive electric guitar wheeling on the score that almost sounded like heat. Uh, Hawk himself is carrying around a DSLR camera as the character so that he can film things like corpses and then also like sex scenes. Yeah. And yeah, like Jamie, I can't say I completely followed every narrative development that was being done <laughs> about sort of like the, the double crossing and the shadow networks and the twin brother. And there's a whole thing about him sort of uncovering like a false flag attack of some kind. Um, but I will say I felt this movie the same way that Ethan Hawke was saying that when he read it, he just, there was something that he kind of got out of it that, you know, wasn't necessarily explicated upon. And, uh, I think that there's just something so intentionally kind of hazy and muddy about the film. 
and its depiction about an information war that you will just never understand and instead you're just going to like wander this ruin and this destruction and the crumbling systems and everything. And uh, there's there's that one point where Ethan Hawke says that he gets so many great lines for, about like God and stuff too. But there, one of my favorites was when he said that Jesus was just another foot soldier. <laughs> uh, you know, like that, that's what he would be if he sh- if he came to Earth right now. And I was just thinking that is what Frera is is at right now. You know, again, he's always got that Catholic guilt element, and he's like, yeah, what if D- Jesus? was in a digital paramilitary hellscape of, of our current world right now. Yeah. And then what if also Jesus was a cameraman who had to bear witness <laughs> to all of the atrocities that we do to each other? Um, so yeah, the, the fact that that exists is honestly like really, really insane to me. And I think this movie was like genuinely beautiful to look at. And I think that Ethan Hawke was really committed. Uh, same with Willem Dafoe. Both of them are just absolute gods for like still, you know, basically signing their, you know, they, they, you know, they do their paycheck movies and then they do a movie like this. And I think that that movies like this are so important for these artists because I think Ethan Hawke even said it in the way that he th- th- he literally opens and closes the movie, uh, which is part of the movie, by telling you about you know this. And I think it was partially to get it over the line, so it was feature length. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, but I, I liked that he said that one of the ways that he feels about as a performer now is that you choose your projects like you're you're lifting up someone who you think is an amazing artist. And like, that's what he said. Literally, he was just like, Abel Ferrer came with this to me. I did it because I think that he's an amazing artist. <laughs> and, yeah. that's, and, and I, and I think that, uh, you know, if, if my fame gets something that, he, you know, he wants to say out into the world, then it's worth it. And I, I kind of agree with him, but yeah, that was my number six. Your number six. My number six is no time to die. James Bond. Oh, um, James Bond, baby. Yeah, I just I don't have much to add. I mean, the the action in this is is unbelievable. These the set pieces are crazy. And I just learned, uh, I think, through the discord that the majority of the action sequences were actually like a set that they built, even the Brazil part, which it just looks oh. so authentic. I was I'm amazed to hear that. Um, I'm sure some of it was on location, but apparently a lot of the action stuff was actually a rebuilt set. So. Uh, huh. just, just incredible filmmaking and, and that's just what I heard. So maybe I'm wrong, but, uh, regardless, uh, it's, I thought this was a very fitting end to this version of bond. Um, a little bit of my <laughs> like fan boyishness of bond was like, was mad at maybe initially at just the balls that, <laughs> that it takes to do what. What yeah, I, I rewatched it over the holidays with my with my mom, and I will say that she she was not she was not stoked. Yeah, yeah, and I and as a like, just because it's the character uh, that we're dealing with, I can kind of understand it. But I just think that if you're watching the um, the, the previous films that Daniel Craig starred in, I I at at a certain point, I think you kind of have to realize that I think this was the only way it was gonna <laughs> it was gonna go, but. Um, I'm trying not, yeah. you know, I'm not, I'm trying not to, to spoil, but it seems probably a little obvious regardless. <laughs> uh, I think that this, it, this, these four or five films are just 
a really great version of Bond. And this this ending here, I think, is a perfect ending to this specific and very tragic character. Um, so yeah, that that's all I pretty much have to say. Really yeah, fun, good. fun, fun. Bond is uh, is on the way for anyone who was very sad that we got uh, nothing but like sad, sad boy Bond, Bond for ten years. Yeah, and and yeah. I'm looking to be honest. I'm very much looking forward to the inevitable fun bond that we're gonna that we're gonna get because it, it is gonna be fun to see that uh, a modern uh, the modern film technology that we have, but applied to a very fun and more episodic bond. I think would be a good thing. But the fact that this version of Bond exists, I think, is very good. And I also think I haven't read them, but I've heard multiple times that the books are a little bit more in line with a very serious tone and and a and a agent that actually does reflect on the things that he's doing so um i think that this version of bond is very fitting and a necessary version so yeah uh this will be my number six sweet uh my number five is something we already brought up uh old ice M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, we did a big bonus transmission on this as well, so I don't have a whole lot on to add about me, what Jamie was talking about. But um, I do think that I could see why this would be disappointing for people who were hoping for like a comeback from like Unbreakable or Signs or the Village era Shyamalan. Yeah, yeah. Mostly because this is more of a sort of high concept genre film than it is necessarily a character film in that kind of way. Even though, again, he always finds a way to get character detail into the writing. I don't think this is not like it's explicitly not a character film. Yeah. But it's just, yeah. you know, it, it's not in the same way that those those films were. Um, it, it's more of a strange hybrid between kind of like the stuff that he's been up to lately, the more sort of lean genre things, things, something like the visit, right. Uh, was something that I thought, I, I thought about something also like the happening. Death, uh, yeah. I was going to say, that which, one. yeah, which is, I think what most people are kind of feeling, uh, about the film, and which is why a lot the, of people you know, do think the happening is like that. So bad. It's good rather than probably more intention than, people think at least that's still like a three for me but yeah it's not not, not one of my favorite Shyamalan, uh, Shyamalans but like it's definitely there there's some really dark imagery in that film and stuff that works more about that film than people uh, give it credit for like the, the so whole too. social breakdown stuff you know there's there is a there is a chilling mood to it sometimes when you know some of the questionable performances aren't distracting you <laughs> yeah. um, and so for but 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 for me yeah I think that like old uh, like if, if sort of, you know, you can take Shyamalan, you know, doing his more sort of conceptual genre exercise mode, uh, there's a lot to really love about this movie. Like it's shot beautifully. The 35 millimeter is, is great. The, the way that he shoots the beach and how sort of like elemental everything feels like the, the, the action, uncensored the, performances that he does where people will be talking, yes. but they're like on the side of the screen. Yes, there's so many like abstracted imagery like that. Um, there's so many perversely emotional like body horror uh, yeah. set pieces as well where, you know, again, the, the concept of mortality and decades of life experience being collapsed, uh, not just into, as we mentioned, like this accelerated logistical time frame of like you're experiencing things happening at a faster rate of time, but sometimes happening in real time in single shots. In, there's right. like roaming, constantly roaming, slow pan tracking shots through a lot of this stuff that gives a lot of visceral impact to 
you know, the, the eventual genre shocks that end up hitting you, like when they're trying to perform surgery and they, the, the body keeps healing so fast that they can't actually cut the tumor out. Yeah. Uh, or when the, the, the little children get old enough to that, the fact that they're kind of like in their late teens and that they discover what sex is and they and get it, <laughs> they get a woman pregnant that, that shot where the, it, it's on, it, it's showing the one person, walk along the beach and then it does a quick pan over to the kids and you just slowly get closer to them as you realize that she is like holding her belly and you know what's happened. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like the visceral impact of that is just amazing. And then the fact that he always frames it within this sort of emotional clarity of all these people in close up, like reacting and, and how do you react on such a quick time frame? Like one of my favorite aspects was that, it was just structured in real time. So like right. they're dealing with so many problems, like people just speeding up their aging process and then just naturally dying or some people speeding up their process, which is uh, accelerating diseases or, um, you know, issues that they have with their body and watching just like one after another, they can't even solve one before the next problem comes up. Right. Um, so I found that pacing really, really, um, effective and I found it, you know, kind of, uh, really cool as this, you know, uh, this idea of like what people are capable of overcoming under exceptional circumstances, which is something that kind of goes through a lot of Shyamalan's work of like characters seeing something extraordinary and kind of having to deal with it. Um, and I think that he eventually kind of gets to a, a cathartic, uh, place with this. Uh, despite the fact that he really puts his characters through the physical and like emotional ringer, at least in terms of like microcosm here, yeah. like the things that they deal with. I mean, Jamie already mentioned the woman whose bones get brittle because she's not drinking her milk and she literally turns into this like, the, 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 like eight legged monster as her yeah. bones break and heal. And she's like trying to chase the kids down. And like, there's, there's a great use of at one point someone stabs someone with a rusty blade, which then immediately sort of like, starts infecting their body and they can't deal with the infection fast enough because it's already in their body. And mm. yeah, like all of that stuff, he came up with nonstop thriller set pieces to get this idea crossed. And it's still psychologically engaged, um, with these, with these characters and with the experience that they're, um, with their, they're going through. The only thing that didn't super work for me was like the last literally like maybe Five 20 minutes. seconds of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a little I, I, like just I don't know if it's too on the nose, so it comes off as too silly after what you've seen. But yeah, it's a little, just a little much. <laughs> well, I I felt like he kind of just wanted to give something that was like a little bit of kind of like a happier ending. I would have just been happy with it kind of ending sort of near near while still kind of like on the on the beach. Yeah, that, um, yeah, I would have been fine with that. There's a there's just kind of a little bit of a clean wrap up that you don't necessarily, the movie didn't necessarily need. I, I don't hate it, but it didn't need it. Yeah. It was just a little unnecessary. Um, but, but beyond that, the choice to just like ground, uh, these, you know, these, uh, I would say there's this kind of intimate POV of these characters trying to make sense of what's happening to them on the ground level and to the choice to make that the majority of the movie. And then at the last minute reveal what has been being imposed on these people, which I won't spoil, but, uh, that, that worked for me. It was just, uh, I don't know that you, you need it as, you know, people, people like to harp on his, like, you know, he needs to have a reveal, 
Um, right. But I wouldn't even necessarily call it like a twist or anything like that. You, you, no, they they set it up the entire time. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, my number five is going to be The Last Duel, which I guess we've talked nice. about already. Yeah, for me, I just, I, I loved the performances especially. I mean, Damon, Driver, and Comer are, are unbelievably good. Uh, I love all of the recontextualizations of all the scenes that you've seen prior, specifically the funnier ones like with Matt Damon and Adam Driver. Just watching their two egos battle it out as they're giving their perspective is very funny, uh, especially as the film goes on and you just realize how pathetic they really <laughs> they really are. Um, it's uh, it's endless fun in that in that regard. But then, you know, it, the the way that it handles the the assault, I think, is very very well done i do think that i was hoping just for a little bit more ambiguity um just because i think that would have been interesting but given the uh historical context that this is about i I think it really works because we already have like you know we have the the court documentation about what went on and the actual fight and all of that so uh, it, it makes i think a little more sense that he chose not to make it completely ambiguous like uh uh, like the, um, uh, like Rushamon, but it's, um, yeah, it's just really well done. I mean, you got rid- all of Ridley's, uh, uh, all, all the Ridley-isms in here. I mean, the, the, the fighting is unbelievable. It's just very dirty, very heavy. All of the, uh, the, the sword fights and within the armor feels incredibly weighted. It's just, it's just very good when it comes to that. Um, and I think that weighted action that Ridley tends to have, just works so well with the ending when it comes to these two men that are fighting for, you know, Matt Damon is fighting for his wife, but I would say mostly his own honor. Uh, Mm -hmm. Adam Driver, the same. And you just really feel their, their hatred towards each other and their circumstances while they're just swinging at each other with these giant swords. And, and, uh, you even, it even starts as a, as a joust. So they're jousting and it goes to groundwork after that. It's just an unbelievable, uh, fight. And, um, yeah, I think, I think it was fantastic. And I like the subtle little differences they do in each, uh, in, e- in each perspective, specifically when they get to Adam Driver and Jody uh, and the assault, where it's just subtle things like Adam Driver views her going up the stairs more playfully, whereas Jody sees it more as like she's tripping and falling and she's losing her shoes, where he thinks and like that, terrified. Yeah, and he thinks that she's just like slipping off her slippers while she's going up the stairs. So just those like very small, subtle changes, I think, were really, really smart and, and very well done. So. Uh, yeah, I would, would suggest it. The Last Duel, Ridley Scott, number five. Yeah. Uh, for me here, what is so what are we moving on here? This is number four. four. So number four, I have an interesting uh, thing here. This is the thing I warned you about before we started, which is nice. uh, this is my, my dual segment of two films that uh, maybe should have been disqualified, but I didn't want to because I loved them so much. Oh, yeah. Um, so this is... <laughs> yeah, this is one, uh, and it was it was ones that I wrestled with. Like I like I obviously disqualified some other ones for not being technically genre e enough. Yeah. Uh, so one uh, is Power of the Dog. Okay. Yeah. Which is the new Jane Campion western film, which I yeah, think I, like that one. I, I think technically is 
on the most basic level, it is like a Western with some sort of, you know, the sort of psychosexual mystery kind of elements thrown into it. It right. even does have some sort of violent elements thrown into it. But the tone is very art house drama. So that was why I was kind of on the fence about it. Yeah. Because I was like, the tone and style aren't quite the normal thing that I would include. But like, like looking at it on paper, it should be included. And the other one I wanted to include was Red Rocket, which is a oh, film nice. that on paper probably should not be included, but has to be included because I think it is one of the sleaziest movies that I saw this year. Yeah. That one's further up on my list. Yeah. So we will, we'll, we'll, we'll do both, but for, for power of the dog for me, I'll, I'll do these ones kind of fast since I, I, I had, I cheated here. Um, but I, it's a, it has a very gorgeous sort of Western backdrop to it. It has a really amazing, um, score, by Johnny Greenwood, who is, you know, slowly just becoming just one of the best composers uh, around. He also also did the score for Spencer this year, which was really good. And obviously he's done basically all of the PTAs since there will be blood. Yeah, his phantom thread is unreal. Same with the master. Yeah, yeah. So very, very cool. Um, And for anyone who hasn't seen it, this is the new Jane Campion film who, uh, for for her, she usually approaches genre from a really interesting um, angle of, you know, definitely having this sort of uh, sort of feminist kind of character slant to a lot of the things that she approaches, which makes it really interesting when you do something like In the Cut, which is a really ugly sort of like erotic uh, you know, 2000s erotic thriller style film, but it's like really uh, gruesome and really troubling. And there's something really interesting here about her approaching what is essentially a novelistic Western about uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, who I think this is my favorite Benedict Cumberbatch performance. I think he's amazing in this. Yeah, um, very good. Who is playing this this character who is this something you wouldn't expect him to play or play well, this very sort of like uh, macho alpha cowboy character who is just an absolutely disruptive force to every single thing around him um, and put constantly putting people down and, and ruining you know relationships with people and constantly just wanting to be dirty and literally won't even take a bath when characters ask him to take a bath. <laughs> um, and uh, watching him kind of deal with essentially this character that comes into his life who is a kid who is experiencing a lot of the same things that he might have experienced when he was younger because that's just it. You, you realize over the course of the film that Benedict Cumberbatch has formed this persona because specifically because of the way that he looks and the way that it doesn't suit him. Um, because you can assume that as a child, like sort of like this, uh, who's the, who's the kid, uh, Cody Smith McPhee. He -hmm. is someone who also, you know, would have been seen as like this skinny kind of outcast weirdo that, you know, doesn't really fit into the Western Vista and the Cowboys and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. They, they don't belong in that kind of image. It's not the way that they look. It's not the way that they act. Um, and so the the rest of the movie, uh, a, good, a good portion of the movie is just him having this kid introduced into his life who used to be a younger version of him and basically trying to teach him how to be stronger and how to live in this very sort of uh, this this world of macho cowboys who are assholes um, and to essentially deal with people like him and protect himself and maybe protect his mother from the domestic horror of, you know, sort of like the men in their lives. Um, and I, I found the sort of way, and I, I'm talking around spoilers because this has a 
very gradual, slow build of detail and implication to it. Um, I, and it made me really want to read the novel because the characters seem really rich with detail. Um, and the majority of the movie is very much this subtle duel of characters kind of committing psychological warfare on each other and shifting the power dynamics and gender roles. There's this element of Cody wanting to protect his, his mother who is played by Kirsten Dunst, uh, who is getting married to Jesse Plemons, which I thought was adorable because those two are married in real life. Oh, and nice. I love that. I love that they basically only ever want to work together. Like they, they keep saying that they basically just want to make movies together now. Um, <laughs> but they are very adorable and have some great on-screen chemistry. And Jesse Plemons is playing Benedict Cumberbatch's brother. Uh, who is a, just a very sweet sort of uh, naive guy who doesn't see the things kind of happening on the periphery and the sort of battles that are taking place psychologically around him. Um, but yeah, once the reveals are actually made and the psychosexual tension and the things that are, you know, the things that actually take place, I found the movie very rewarding thinking about it in retrospect. And I've really wanted to revisit it. Uh, and it looks gorgeous. I saw it at TIFF on the big screen. It looked amazing. Uh, the, the Western Vistas, the way that they somehow made New Zealand look like uh, wh- wherever it's supposed to be, Montana, I think. Yeah. They did a really good job making that look like Montana. Um, and, and all the various sort of like cow herding that they do and, you know, all kinds of that stuff. And yeah, it, it eventually goes to some dark places, I will say, um, where there is this constant ominous atmosphere of something destructive is going to happen. You're not exactly sure what it was. Uh, and eventually, you know, it, it, it does occur and you realize you were watching this, you know, uh, this, this movie kind of about repression and about, you know, sort of these vulnerable characters, uh, who find themselves in kind of like this, this fable about how to, you know, make do in the West when you aren't a traditionally sort of masculine kind of figure for, you know, whatever reason that may be. There's, there's multiple kind of suggested by the film. Um, but yeah, I'd say, uh, I want to go into it again with the knowledge of its structure uh, in mind and, and the eventual destination, which I thought you know, was really rewarding. Um, and then Red Rocket, which is going to be further up Jamie's list. Just an amazing 70s character study. Uh, just a, a, a charismatic and resourceful dirtbag motherfucker on screen <laughs> <laughs> played by uh, Simon Rex from Scary Movie 3 and 4 fame. Yeah. Uh, and and he's, he's amazing. He's so good. One of the one of the performances of the year, absolutely, um, and just an absolute monster. He's literally a, a sort of former porn star from California who returns to his hometown in Texas on like a on like a greyhound with no clothes, listening to InSync, <laughs> and. Uh, he spends the entire movie sort of, you know, there's a little bit of Florida project in here, but there's also a little bit of, I was reminded of uh, the Safdie brothers. Good time yeah, where you're just kind of latched to the point of view of a character who is just, uh, you know, uh, exploiting every single relationship he's ever had around him. Uh, very pragmatically thinking, not thinking about these people as people cause he kind of deems them kind of worthless in his eyes. Um, and just basically being just the most vile bottom feeding asshole you could possibly imagine and just watching this character do it, but also being once again, incredibly charming and kind of 
charismatic about it while he's uh, doing it. You see how he gets into people's lives and how he worms his way in and like you, you kind of understand it um, and also see the kind of, you know, where he came from and the kind of the, the class desperation that mm-hmm. that kind of mindset was generated from at the same time. Uh, so yeah, very gross movie, but very funny and very beautiful and the most full fun- frontal gags of the year. So many shots of his penis. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's great. I'll, uh, I'll yeah, we'll, describe. We'll, we'll, we'll go back to that when we talk about it on Jamie's, I think. Yeah, for sure. Sweet. Uh, so my number four is uh Titan directed by Julia. Uh, Titan or Titan? Yeah, whatever, whatever you <laughs> French people say. Uh, directed by Julia. What? How do I say this one? These names, man. Oh, I can't. Oh, oh, I don't know. Yeah, De Corno. Uh, De Corno. We're supposed to be French. We're supposed to be have a little bit of French in us too. <laughs> yeah. you know? we're just dumb English people. All but right. Yeah, this is perfect. We can do it at the same time because it's also my number three. So let's get it out of the way. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, this this Titan. is uh, quite the film. I mean this. This goes from like being a slasher kind of serial killer on the run to a familial melodrama to to a uh, gender uh, <laughs> swapping body horror. It's 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 crazy. Like th- this thing has many subgenres that it's diving into, and I, in my mm-hmm. opinion, seamlessly goes in and out of them. Uh, and they even not, not even necessarily like going in and out of these genres, but then eventually converging all of them together, uh, to make something unlike anything I've ever seen before in my entire life. Uh, it's, it's, it's essential. I mean, I don't even want to get into too much of the details because some of the plot stuff is kind of spoilery. And I feel like if you go into it with a blank slate, it's going to be very shocking. Um, and I, so I don't want to explain too much, but it's basically this, this, this model, uh, who becomes on the run because she seems to have these, uh, homicidal tendencies, which, uh, goes into this incredible scene where she slaughters like four people in a house. Uh, and that's as much detail as I'll get into for now, but because she's on the run, uh, it, it also eventually leads into her being, uh, pregnant with a, um, a, a <laughs> you know what? I don't, I don't want to spoil that either. That's the thing. There's so many. No, that, that, that you can spoil. I think everyone's familiar with the premise of the film by now. Yeah, true. Um, okay. So she gets it, pregnant it, it, by a car. <laughs> yes. This is the, this, this is the way people have been pitch, have been like Pitching describing it. it. She was like, have you seen the movie where she fucks the car? Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so essentially it becomes this thing where it's like human, a human being giving birth to this metal human hybrid. Uh, he has to deal with all of the the, the body changes, and yeah. she's also dealing with some uh, uh, internal um, gender identity issues. So she's kind of struggling with wanting to be uh, with with uh, in this more masculine crowd while also being pregnant, and kind of eventually, not at first, but eventually. Uh, kind of enjoying the idea of being a mother, but does also doesn't want to stray from the relationship that she's made being the masculine version of herself with her newfound father. This all probably sounds incredibly complicated and that's because it is, but surprisingly all of this does converge really well into a very coherent and uh, bizarre story. So yeah, that was my, my number four. 
Yeah, it's uh, it, it, it's my number three. And yeah, I think it's a, a really great combination of one new French extremity, like gore, gore. Yeah, essentially. Uh, it's like it's a it's a it's a pretty gross movie. You get you get some body horror in there. Uh, you get the sort of uh, the art house sensuality of something like uh, like Claire Denis. Mm-hmm. You know, I think when yep. we did the bonus transmission, we brought up like Beau Travail was kind of something similar to like the dudes rock firefighter dancing sequences that take place in the film. Mm-hmm. There's a little yep. bit of Cronenberg Videodrome and Crash with the slow bodily transformation into like a post human being, plus also th- how it's connected to like a sexual fixation as well because there's. The, the the whole deal with the car stems from this kind of childhood trauma that mixes metal flesh and, you know, has to deal with kind of like a, fa- a father figure. And uh, it's been really interesting reading what uh, the director has to say about it uh, because she was talking about that when she approaches, when she approached the movie, she was saying that, you know, something, an idea that kind of upsets her is that, you know, flesh and skin is something that's very prominent in her films, like in her last film, Raw, to the yeah. coming of age t- teen cannibal movie or whatever, because, um, you know, it's what makes us these external beings. It's the first barrier of expectation is what she says about it. It's like based on what y- what your flesh and your skin and your hair look like, that deems kind of like who people think you are. And that doesn't and to her. That's like ridiculous. Um, so this whole movie is literally this woman shedding literally shedding her skin and her flesh and everything and becoming what she actually is on the inside, which is this kind of, you know, metal fetishist. And so the the early serial killing scenes are so interesting because it's literally just this very ugly, aggressive expression of rage at the idea that, you know, her father expects her to be this cute little daughter, uh, this girl that she met and might be a girlfriend, you know, uh, can't actually fulfill her sexually because <laughs> she wants to bite her nipple ring off because <laughs> it's metal. Uh, you know, uh, even at even how she expresses her sexual interest in metal and cars at the the car dance show, it can't be expressed properly because everyone just views her as like a stripper and then starts trying to like berate her after the shows and things like that. So it's literally like she can't express the things that she's feeling internally because they're not they're kind of like taboo. You know, there's nothing she can really do about it. So the the whole movie is her shedding that and eventually becoming this, you know, this sort of, uh, you know, this this post human metal fetishist being. And it's very funny in the early scenes watching her try to have a normal relationship with like a father, a girlfriend, to people at work when she'd have a much easier time living in the Tetsuo, the Iron Man universe, hanging out oh, with yeah. that guy. They'd be uh, they'd have. They'd have they have great conversations. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, and then it eventually combines into this uh, story with the Vincent Linden character who gives this very incredible, one of my favorite performances of the year as well, a very physical performance where you just see this like vul- vulnerable, sad, giant buff Frenchman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, who essentially wants to, I, I'm not going to spoil exactly what it is that's going on, but he eventually de- develops a relationship with this woman and they are both in their own way. Characters kind of dealing with uh, the fact that they kind of don't really fit in. And it turns into this kind of familial almost rom-com drama in a way, a little bit where like, 
maybe these two can give each other what they've been, you know, trying to look for. Maybe they can sort of vertigo style mold the other person into the person they want them to be. Yeah. Um, and yeah, eventually we end up kind of getting this, you know, despite the fact that this continues on the body horror elements and it keeps getting gross and weird and taking it to as many extremes as it can, uh, you eventually get something that is kind of, uh, tender, and cathartic about kind of uh, unconditional love and accepting people for who they are on the inside, despite what, you know, all of the sort of identity factors that people project onto each other. Um, and I, yeah, I won't spoil it more than that. Yeah. So great film. That was my number three. So Jamie's number three, I think. My number three is going to be Dune, directed by Denise hey. Villeneuve. Hey, we can knock this one off the list, too, because that's my number two. Beautiful. That works. Look at look at this. Lion through <laughs> it. Uh, so yeah, this. I mean, this was. Uh, I mean, to start visually insane. I mean, just one of the yes. most beautifully realized worlds I've ever seen. Um, shame on all of you in the Discord for for uh, doubting my boy Denis. My God. Yep. He he just he pulled through. I mean, this this thing is. I've never watched or read the book, but. Josh has told me that it is uh, very heavily detailed, a lot of character work, a lot of internal monologues. Uh, so in order for Denise to really sell this world and, and for us to understand all of these people's political motivations and emotional motivations, um, it, it it's a... I, I think he's one of the only ones that could have done it today, honestly. I, I even watched uh, Lynch's uh, 80s version, and I will say I watching both still I'm a little confused on some of the politics because this is such a dense movie and a dense story. Um, I just think Denise, what he mostly focused on was what it feels like to be, be within each ecosystem and kind of uh, diving into each uh, uh, each kind of I, I, you don't want to call them tribes like one of them seems more tribal just because they're they're more uh, within the desert and they don't have um, all of the the royalty politics that that uh, that Timothy has to deal with but um, they all each section has kind of their own beliefs and their own systems and uh, and seeing all of them intertwine and collide with each other is endlessly uh, intriguing and I think that I especially loved the more dark imagery that he did with like the Baron, like having him be this, like instead of just having him float, but designing his robe to meet the ground so that it looks as if he's like a 20 foot tall uh, God of some kind, I think is a really Mm. cool choice, especially compared to once again, I'm saying all this without any knowledge of the book, but especially compared to Lynch's Baron, (coughs) which I do like, um, but his is more, a little bit more like, comical the way that it's presented just because he's floating around he's got these like boils on his face and this version of him is just so evil and dark and uh and powerful um so i i really really liked what denise did in general and and i've always wanted to see that giant ass worm just on the big screen like that so that was just a more of a nerd thing but i it was it was great to see how he applied that like that that big giant imax shot of of the worm just swallowing the entire desert as they're trying to escape on their like dragonfly helicopter 
Um, it's mm. just incredible. And that's another thing too. It's just like these, these cool designs, these sci-fi designs that always feel futuristic, but they also feel very um, grounded and almost analogy at times. So mm. that was something I really liked too. And, and the design of using those vehicles, like the dragonfly, you know, does a lot of this stuff where it can, uh, kind of fold in on itself so that it does these quick dives and then they'll spread out the wings again to glide and it just leads to some really cool action sequences as well so um mm-hmm. yeah i uh i really i really enjoyed it i'm still as you can probably tell formulating my thoughts about it a little bit when it comes to the actual politics and themes i want to dive back into it again but um mm-hmm. or read the book i think that would really clarify some things but yeah reading the stands, book I, I i can't i can't suggest highly enough yeah as it stands though just on a visual level as uh, just just kind of gathering information visually about this world and just seeing people interact um was enough for me to still kind of understand the surface level motivations i would just really like to take a deep dive so yeah Mm -hmm. yeah that's the thing that i would say i was i was impressed with because obviously you mentioned a lot of the amazing uh, design work and the and the visuals and obviously it's it's impossible not to be overwhelmed i think by how just like lovingly engineered a piece of spectacle the film is how brooding it is and you know how the you know the, the the droning kind of miserable tone of it the detail and texture of the of the architecture, the the brutalist architecture and the concrete and its depiction of like this empire in decay by like these huge godlike uh or like these these like hugely empty spaces just sparsely populated by like one super ugly figure like the baron or yeah. something and then you get the hostile godlike you know wadi rum desert which is where they shot lawrence of arabia so you know it's, it's in it's in conversation with like you know other historical characters who have got lost in the desert and yeah. fallen in love with the it and joined another adventure. political faction yep yep so obviously like the tactile retro sci-fi design work is just really impeccable. The medieval religious spacesuits, the, you know, the stone surfaces, the, you can feel the lack of moisture in the air. And yeah. I saw this luckily on laser IMAX where it went to full 1.43, like the, the Zack Snyder justice league ratio, floor to ceiling imagery. And, uh, you just felt dwarfed by the sheer magnitude and mythic size of this universe that he has kind of come up with. And I really respected that, that was the mode that he went because, you know, as Jamie is kind of saying, you know, he felt a little confused because he doesn't know the material. And I think that that is absolutely fair. And I think part yeah. of the reason is that Villeneuve intentionally removed kind of, he, he kept it as economical in terms of exposition as he could have kept it. A lot of the, the things you're supposed to feel uh, and a lot of the things that even characters are doing on the periphery, like some of the characters are less psychologically engaging than they are in the book because you don't get their thoughts. You don't get to hear their schemes within schemes like in their brains. Mm-hmm. So because of that, uh, a lot of it is left up to tone and visual detail of, of what you feel as these characters are going through this experience. And And for me, the thing that was just most impressive was that reading the book, there is this element to it that is amazing that each chapter is broken up into historical texts from the future, from a future timeline where the events you're reading have already happened. So sometimes you will like read about a character writing in a historical book or singing a song about a character in the story that you're reading, mm-hmm. but it's very clearly like they wrote a song about a dead character who is like living on through the memory of teachings and things like that. And right. the character hasn't died yet in the book. 
(laughs) So you're sitting there and you would think that that would be like a dramatic mistake that the book makes, but instead it actually just makes what you're reading have the experience of feeling like it was inevitable or it was predestined, like something horrible was going to happen. Right. So the next time you have a conversation with that guy in the book, you're like, you know that this guy's doomed. That kind of thing. Yes, exactly. So you 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 really ex- you really experience these tragic feelings of like these characters are trying to make maneuvers, but they have basically walked into a trap and are being squeezed. Right. And that is the tone of this film. That is the experience uh, you get. That Timothy uh, playing Paul Atreides and his his family, like Oscar Isaac is in this film and is great. Rebecca Ferguson in the film is great. Josh Brolin, amazing cast. Yeah, amazing everybody. Work. They, that they all do. Um, but you're essentially watching this family caught in a centuries long destructive political machine that involves, you know, like these, these other house families who are used to running sort of like slave labor camps and you get, uh, you know, then you get the entire sort of, uh, all the other political families and the houses, uh, then you get the Ben Gisharit. So you get sort of like the sort of more of sort of like religious sort of, um, uh, see into the future kind of elements as, uh, as well a, a little bit. And yeah, so these characters are just trapped in this political machine and you basically just watch these characters exchange painful, wordless, knowing glances at each other and, you know, characters who are torn between, you know, uh, you know, they have familial emotions and blood relationships versus like you have a political duty to serve. Um, and I think that he really nails all of that. Like when this eventually, when this movie, you know, again, as Jamie mentioned, it's very tactile, it's very analog, it's very grounded into like a yeah. sort of political reality of this world. But then when it gets into the dreams, it gets really crazy, like the blood and the fire. And then when it gets into the action, it's like these very sudden, just horrible, brutal military massacres, despite being a PG 13 movie. Um, you know, this is like, it, it's very distressing. Mm-hmm. Um, ju- just between the, the rhythmic cross cutting and how dark it is and the abrasive sounds. Uh, we didn't mention Hans Zimmer's score. Oh yeah. Incredible. Very good. Um, and the robotic throat singing and bagpipes and Oof. just shrieking and pounding and everything like in, in, in terms of what Villeneuve has crafted stylistically here, I think that this is as faithful an adaptation as could have been just in terms of how sort of, uh, destructive and doom laden, um, that this, this film feels, which is exactly what it needs to be because Herbert, the author even said that he called the, the novel Dune because how it phonetically echoed the word doom. Mm -hmm. So if that's the feeling that you're getting watching the film, then I think that he's, uh, he, he's done what's right. And my only reservation about the film is that it's, it's half a film. You know, I think this is something Jamie and I mentioned on the bonus transmission. If you want to hear us talk more, but like, Essentially, it's like, you know, there there is a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of narrative turns ahead that are going to cohere things that Jamie might be wondering about, like the warring forces of like, there's a little bit of free will. There's a little bit of communication about environmental resources and, you know, sort of political wars and religious propaganda and colonial and military power. And, you know, all of these things 
are things that, you know, you kind of need part two of the arc yeah. to kind of see exactly how it's all going to play out. But if, if part two can remain as faithful to the grim elemental feelings and, you know, be as faithful to that section of the story as this was, uh, I think this could be, you know, like one of the best sci-fi fantasy things that we've, we've gotten in a long time. Yeah. Uh, desert power. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that was my number Ride two, which means Jamie, you're number two, I think. My number two is, and I, I, this, these two next two, I kind of would swap given any day right now. Uh, but the reason I'm giving this the number two specifically is just because like Josh said earlier, it's <laughs> kind of cheating. Um, but both in a way, I think the next two are kind of like a little bit subversive compared to what we usually have in the top five. Um, but the, my second one is red rocket directed by Sean yeah. Baker. Uh, we, yeah, we've been through it. It's, it's Sean Baker. Come on the pod. Yeah, please. Oh my God. Huge fan. <laughs> I love Sean Baker. Every movie he's come out with so far, I have four starred and this one I think was the closest to getting the five so far. Uh, yeah, I think, I think this is my favorite that he's done so far too. Yeah. Florida project also almost got there, but I don't know if it will, but I mean, regardless, it's it, all of them are incredible films, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, but Simon Rex, this was a awesome uh, I guess you could you, you don't want to call it like breakout, but I feel like it will be in a way. I think that this is going to be the stepping stone to the next part of his career because this thing is unbelievable. I, I hope he has more in him because he uh, is incredibly charming and somehow he makes one of the most like big like the one of the <coughs> biggest pieces of shit in, on film that I've seen be likable uh, up to a point, of course, it, it, within the movie. But up until that point you're like mad at yourself for how much you'd want to have a beer with this guy. Like, you're just like, how is this dude so endlessly charming and charismatic and funny? And, uh, just, just, you have like oddly positive things to say about him up to, up to a certain point. And then as it unravels, it just gets grosser and grosser and grosser until you realize this guy is a complete like sociopath. Uh, yeah. and, um, I, I can't wait for the licorice pizza crowd to watch this one. Yeah, that, okay. That too. I mean, I was, I was going to bring that up. It's like, I, I've been hearing, I haven't seen it yet, but I've been hearing about the licorice pizza, uh, conversations and I can't imagine that anything in licorice pizza is, uh, as gross <laughs> as what you see in this movie, because what, what we do see eventually, um, is he finds an underage girl that he thinks <laughs> Could really be a, t- a talent in the porn industry, and there are explicit scenes with them in it. And um, and you know you do feel very complicated about it, but I don't ever think that you know Sean Baker obviously is not for this guy. Uh, I think that's a pretty obvious critique to say. Mm-hmm. Um, I I could see some people having an issue with just how much he shows, but. I do once again think it's kind of a part of you realizing how bad Mikey really is as a character. Um, mm-hmm. it, the more you see it, the more you just feel disgusted with him. Uh, and it really destroys that initial 
uh, likeness that he has in the first half of the movie, and and that's just it's necessary for the characters uh, that we're that we're taking a look at here. So, I, I think he handles it really well, Baker. And same with mm-hmm. Simon Rex. I mean, this thing he, he's a powerhouse in this movie. He's in every single scene. He's always funny. He is incredibly complicated. <laughs> uh, it's 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 great stuff. I I have nothing but praise to say about this film. I I almost vibed it, and maybe down the line I will. And same with our the, the next one we're going to be talking about. Yeah, I really I really loved watching him just like go back to his hometown and be like, what? Like you know, I, I we're on good terms, and every like clearly he left town in like the worst. And no one, so- yeah. That's yeah, the thing. Yeah, just the, like, the the worst circumstances imaginable, and then from the graciousness of like this small community to like forgive him and welcome him back, and to just watch him exploit them all over again, round two, yeah, to the point where like so he can leave again. He ruins a kid's life, uh, and he also takes a seventeen-year-old uh, back to California with him to turn her into a porn star. Yeah. So it, uh, that's the kind of guy we're dealing with on this. And uh, it, it's just one of the best characters. Well, and, 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 si- and Simon Rex while. is what? He's like 45 or something. Yeah. So it's like, it's, it's, yeah. What a, what a crazy uh, thing to that, that Sean Baker just like called him up and was like, hey, I got a movie. We, we can kind of like shoot it in a week. Do you want to do this? <laughs> And they just did it. They just went and shot it. And it's beautiful. The 16 millimeter okay. anamorphic of him riding his bike with like the uh, the factory smog of his hometown, like disrupting the beautiful like sunset sky and stuff like yeah. that. Like all that imagery looks fantastic. And it's endlessly funny. Like Sean Baker has that that look that he seems to put in all his movies where it's like that California sun, a lot of pinks and yellows and, and yeah, bright, yeah, bright sunlight stuff. And um and I just love that that mixes with such a fucking disgusting character because the look of this movie, it is like sweaty at times and a little filthy here and there, but it's it's quite beautiful a lot of the time. But then you you're mixing it. What you're watching is like a guy go through these kind of really pretty, but maybe poor areas um, that and and you're looking at this beauty, but then you're looking at this character that's just that just got on his bike because he was flirting with a 17 year old at a donut shop and he's going back yeah. to his home using that motivation by flirting with the 17 year old to fuck his ex-girlfriend so that he can get a boner. Like it's just the craziest shit. Yeah. He's Which by the way, it, it's such a dark character because the ex-girlfriend was the first girl he left town with to turn her into a porn, porn star. Right. And it ruined her life. Yeah. And now she's like a crack um, addict and it's just, yeah, he's he's he basically just goes from person to person and appears as if he's going to be helpful or just wants to be a friend or whatever. And then you just watch him destroy these relationships again. That's the key too, yeah. is that he's already done this before. And now he's coming back 20 years later after he was successful and failed because of that success. It probably got to got in over his head. Uh, now he's just doing it again so that he can put himself in that exact same position. Yeah. So it's, it's, yeah. it's great. It's fucking awesome. No, it's, it's, it's really cool. It's, it's watching a California like huckster con man essentially go into like a small Texas town and just, you know, uh, do as much damage as he can do to get, you know, like a, like a slight leg up. The funniest yep. thing for me is that the, the desperation is like, he's not even doing it over like that much success. No. It's like, <laughs> even though he, he, was like he could just have a good life living there star. you know he got a couple yeah. of awards they even make a joke 
about how the <laughs> award that he got was based on a scene where he was like getting a blowjob, but he was also getting it with five other dudes. So the joke right. keeps being like, t- t- like he'll tell that to people, and then and every person that t- that he tells it to is just like, shouldn't that? Why be did the you get that award? <laughs> yeah, and then Why he's did she just get like, the award? no, no. It's I mean, there's different ways to look at it, and I I actually yeah. really liked his perception of like his porn uh, acting and stuff. That was very funny too. So yeah, it's great. I don't want to spoil too much more, but it's fantastic. Absolutely go watch it. If you can go see it in a theater, that'd be amazing. I couldn't. I had to get it off the interwebs, mm-hmm. but um, fantastic movie. Couldn't recommend it yeah. more. Yeah, I, I got to see it in the theater and can recommend it. It looks amazing. Um, and yeah, j- despite the fact that that's kind of like a like a small town American drama in a way, uh, it somehow feels like one of the sleaziest character studies yeah. uh, that came out this year. And I think there's enough so. crime elements to consider it. So, Yeah. Uh, well, moving on to number one, if my math is correct, we have the same number one. I think we do. I think we okay. do. That's, that's, I think we've done this before with the Irishman. This happened This happened in 2019 with the Irishman as well, where we yep. just spent the whole time building up to the same number one, which is this year, the card counter, correct? Yes. Paul Schrader, baby. Had Paul to give it to Schrader. my boy, Paul. Yeah, Paul is back, baby. Yes, he is. Um, yeah, we did, a, we did a big old bonus transmission on this as well for yeah. anyone who wants to hear us talk we won't uh, go maybe too even crazy more about it. it. So we won't go too crazy here. But yeah, this is the new Paul Schrader film. Everyone's favorite American film critic turned art house genre filmmaker turned terrified Facebook grandpa. Yeah, um, my favorite Facebook user of all time. Yes. Um, <laughs> Paul, the invitation still stands. If you need a new poker yes. uh, party, I we will host game. one for you. Uh, we will play with you. Uh, but but my, by my calculations, uh, as we mentioned, this is Paul's seventh attempt writing and fourth attempt <laughs> directing a Robert Bresson pickpocket yeah. <laughs> style film. He can't help himself. Uh, a transcendental cinema style treatise on uh, lonely, regretful, violent American men and their their souls that are confined to the uh, the existential crisis of their very bare, very spare, austere rooms. So, if that appeals to you, which if you listen to the show, it probably should. Um, this is very much in the vein of uh, First Reformed, which was an incredible film. This is very much in the vein of Light Sleeper, which we haven't talked out about yep. on the show, yep. but we will at some point. Um, this this has elements of things like American Gigolo in it, uh, even Taxi Driver yep. a little bit with uh, you know with the war veteran aspect of it. So I basically knew this was going to be my favorite. I've watched this film four times, and every single nice. time I want to upgrade it to the five, I just haven't yet. But I mm-hmm. think it's going to happen probably. Yeah. Um, because yeah, this is a really really um, impeccable. Uh, film and I think that Paul is in like a current there's something so interesting about his current mode of making modern films where I some someone pointed this out I think it was a friend of the pod Will Sloan pointed this out on Twitter that a lot of uh, our current like old man greats are currently making nothing but period pieces yeah uh, like basically all of them like Scorsese um, I mean, even not even old man, but some of the younger guys like PTA hasn't made a non-period piece in a while. Tarantino hasn't made a non-period piece in a while. Like everyone of they these just sort of like great auteur <laughs> filmmakers is, yeah, they, they're not making films about characters who live today. 
Um, and there's something so interesting to me about Paul who between first reformed and this has kind of entered a new mode of his career where he is, you know, he's making character, he's making movies about characters who have experienced very old political horrors of the world that he sees today and is very upset about and have resigned themselves essentially to, to uh, you know, keeping to themselves and, you know, living out this sort of, uh, this isolated prison, like monk existence almost. Yeah. Um, until this happens in first reformed and the card counter until they see that these problems still existing are basically hurting the future. They're hurting the kids. They're hurting these people who come into their lives. And so because of that, they kind of choose to, to act or they enter that this crisis kind of takes, you know, uh, goes into kind of like a new mode. Um, and in first reformed, obviously that had to do with a little bit more about, it was more about sort of like the, the environmental crisis as well as, uh, there was obviously a, a religious element in that. And one of my favorite aspects of that film was that, you know, it was Ethan Hawke dealing with the fact that, you know, he has people, he was like a, a, a priest from cinema's past. He was like a diary of a country priest or a winter light priest. Right. And characters were coming, looking to him for help being like, I don't think that I can have a kid in my life and I want to die because I don't think that I think the planet <laughs> is going to burn into a fireball before they come, you know, uh, into the world. Yeah. And, uh, Ethan Hawke then has to re has to go through this crisis of realizing that corporatized spirituality and religion and sort of capitalism's culpability in the climate crisis means that, you know, he's kind of involved. Like uh, one of the guys who is ruining the planet is a donor at his church. Right. <laughs> right. And so like that just, and then, so you just follow the, so the slow psychological breakdown of a character dealing with that contradiction. And instead here we have the, uh, the, the war on terror and the war crimes committed in the Middle East that uh, Oscar Isaac's character here playing uh, William Tell or Tillich, uh, he was someone who was stationed at Abu Ghraib and uh, committed war crimes on black sites. And yeah, he, he now plays poker. He went to prison for it and now he learned how to count cards and he plays poker now as a sort of form of, uh, once again, sort of self-imposed uh, isolation. And I, I, I love in terms of the style that instead of like Light Sleeper where it's like neon New York nightlife, this is like mundane casino floors and motel rooms and prison. Yeah. There's just something so routine uh, about it that is really, really amazing when it rubs up against, you know, the the more extreme elements that take place in the film. The flashbacks. Like those, yeah, those really crazy wide-angled uh, flashbacks that he does, which just show, like, stretches out the image so that it feels yeah. like, like not of this earth, almost. It feels like this subterranean realm that wouldn't even be here. <laughs> yeah. It's really no, that, ugh, horrifying. Yeah. That stuff is really, really crazy, and the, the 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 bodily fluids and the blood and the shit and the abuse and the torture and everything and the loud music playing and the you know 
the, uh, the, the, the sort of sexual abuse of, of the people in there. It's so crazy to me. We talked about it on the bonus transmission, but the fact that this movie was released on the 20th anniversary of nine 11. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Paul really went for it on that one. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's, it's king shit. You have the character being like USA, USA. And you just get Oscar Isaac being like, I want to shove that yeah, red, I, white and blue flag, uh, up his ass and out his mouth or something. Yeah, I yeah. love that commentary just like, because Oscar basically has to look at those dudes with the, the giant American flag outfit and, you know, being obnoxious in every single scene that they're in and playing poker with them. He basically has to yeah. look at them and go like, that's who I fought for. Shit. You know, like that kind of thing. Yeah. Like he's just sitting across from the people that, you know, at least initially, he's definitely in a place in his life where I don't think he thinks that anymore. But initially when he joined, I'm sure that's what he thought he was doing. Um, and mm. just for him to look across the table and see like that's who is representing America now. And uh, and the mix between his like isolation and his past uh, t- torturous thoughts is just unbelievable. I love that he presents the motel room like completely covered so that there's no art, there's no color, there's no nothing. Like he doesn't even allow the motel room art to be in his life. You know, like even that is too expressive. No phone or alarm clock. He has to cover every table with like a sheet with, uh, with some like, uh, uh, some string. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and I think what sold me by the end of the film, uh, is just the, there is violence. I'm not going to say there isn't, but there is a lack of it compared to what I thought the film was leading to. And that really works, uh, in a, yeah. in a great way. And uh, specifically a scene with Oscar and Ty Sheridan where Oscar is threatening him. Nothing really comes to uh, like comes out of it, it uh, physically, but the threat itself when he's just sitting uh, right in front of Ty as he's interrogating him and telling him he's not going to do a certain thing he's trying to do. I like I felt the fear that Ty Sheridan's character was probably feeling like it, Oscar Isaac's performance in general is great. But specifically in, in that scene, I felt it was intimidating and he's doing pretty much nothing except just subtly telling him things with a very stoic presence. Um, yeah. But it's just enough to, to know this man's past and not to fuck with him. Uh, it's it's fantastic. Yeah. This number one. Yeah. Well, for sure. and not to mention he's threatening to Abu Ghraib torture this kid yes. unless he uh, basically takes one hundred and fifty thousand dollars from him and goes back to school and starts reignites his relationship with his mother. Like yeah. he's basically being like, look, he sees this kid who wants revenge on the same guy that he blames, or at least that he should be seeking revenge on, which is the Willem Dafoe character, yeah. who is a character who you know orchestrated the actual Abu Ghraib tactics and, and campaign lavishly. and everything. And is living lavishly and just working for law enforcement, never went to prison, like never got the comeuppance that he got because he was actually captured in the photographs doing what he taught him to do. Right. There's also something so terrifying about the, uh, you know, the realization that for Oscar Isaac's character, there's something so complicated about the fact that he doesn't seek that revenge because he doesn't necessarily blame him because he realized that he had the right stuff. 
inside him. And he goes, what I did was my fault. Like he, he blames himself. He takes full culpability and yeah, he even practically that. looks into the camera and said, there's no just justification for what we did. And I, you know, he doesn't even try. So he, that's why he's not seeking the kind of revenge that this kid, Ty Sheridan, whose father was someone who also served, but who ended up coming back home and beating his kid and beating his wife and then killing himself. Yep. Um, you know, there's, uh, you know, Ty Sheridan, you know, obviously blames that experience on Willem Dafoe. And so I love that the movie so much is like Oscar Isaac, who's playing the character perfectly. I think it is still my favorite performance of the year. It's, it's so, it's such a tortured and controlled performance simultaneously where you can see all of the pain and like nightmares behind his eyes. But at the same time, he doesn't do anything without like very careful planning. Um, he doesn't and, even really have like an explosive Oscar moment and it's so good not to No, Yeah, he doesn't even get you can you can hear him get mad, but he gets mad in his head and it's right. always it's the it's and I think it's such a purposeful use of the narration when he does it because uh, you know, you can tell that he he has a temper, but he has really learned to control his body and control his impulses. Um, and so that's what he's trying to get the kid to do is he's like, look, you can you know, you don't need to go and get yourself killed trying to get revenge. You know, you should just try and fix your life. You should just move on. You should yeah. do something else. And obviously we won't spoil exactly how, but there is sort of like a, a, a tragic sort of, uh, you know, way that that was going to turn out. And Oscar Isaac does eventually, you know, this movie does eventually go through the revenge beats that you kind of expect the movie to do. Mm -hmm. Um, But what's so interesting is that even when it does, it's still done in this very ugly, stripped down kind of sense of of ennui. They take Um, out any like movie entertainment fun (coughs) or or satisfaction that you would normally get out of the revenge moment. And it's just like to the point, dry and barely shown. Um, yes. And it's, I mean, it's a great decision. It's perfect. Yeah, it, it, it's a style that really perfectly matches this the, the, this character. Yeah. Because again, this, exactly. is, this is a character of calculated routine and who spends all his time in clean, anonymous locations and has formed this kind of guilty, self-loathing, sort of self-imposed isolation um, just as a way of past the time because he's trying to escape this history of noise yeah. that he's experienced. Um, Can't and listen yeah, to metal so, anymore. <laughs> no, no, you wouldn't want to hear that shit ever again. I know, it's a shame. <laughs> um, the biggest crime. And, <laughs> and yeah, so, so, so watching him, you know, like watching him get revenge, but not do it in a way that, you know, reveals any sort of underlying justification or even catharsis, but just doubles down on the feelings of weight and the melancholy realization that like this is still not going to really set things right. He just probably, he just feels like he deserves to be punished anyway. Yeah. So might as well just fucking do it, you know, might as well just get the revenge and, you know, uh, end the movie the way that it ends, which I won't exactly say, um, how yeah uh but it's like you might as well get this ugly force out of the world and you know so it can't swallow up another kid uh even if you don't entirely blame it for everything that you kind of did so it has this anti-revenge kind of quality and it the moment where he gets it and it does that pan away like the like the the sequence in taxi driver when he's talking on the phone Mm -hmm. um amazing 
amazing. Yeah, it's great. Check it out. And I want to, b- before we wrap it up, uh, credit that this has one of my favorite scores of the year. Easy. I don't know if, if you've done it, but man, I've been listening to this thing all the time. I have. This it, is actually. done by Robert Bean, who is the son of Michael Bean, who did the co- the score for Light Sleeper, which I thought was such a oh, really sick. cool thing. Yeah. Uh, because because Light Sleeper is like these more like '80s love sort of pop rock ballads uh, to get into kind of like the 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 romantic yearning of the Willem Dafoe character in that, and also recasting Willem Dafoe, but in this one not in a, in a very anti romantic role. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, the, the the soundtrack is the exact opposite of his father's soundtrack for light sleeper. It's, it's all gloom and haunt and like haunting and ghostly, very breathy. It's like, in my yeah. <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, so, and I've listened to it a lot, uh, because it really just gets you into the vibe, um, you know, of this film of just constantly accruing, uh, accruing this, this very dark sense of weight. Yeah. Um, as the movie moves on, and, uh, you know, and, and I, we should give Paul credit too. the dude is kind of romantic at heart. Yeah. He can't help himself. He has one incredible sequence in this where Tiffany Haddish, who's also really great in the film, mm-hmm. takes Oscar Isaac on that little trip to show him the light show to show him. Have you ever seen a city lit up at night? And his, uh, I've seen a city on fire. And she's like, that's not really what I was talking about. <laughs> uh, but there's a really beautiful sort of like surreal sequence where she shows him all of these lights that almost looks kind of like CG and really crazy where she tries to show him a world that could exist outside of the mundane casino and motel six that he stays in. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and uh, it does have kind of a a little bit of a optimistic kind of ending. Oh yeah, which I which I appreciated uh, somehow. And yeah, Paul, the dude's just killing it. The dude is in a mode where he he's making very politically activated, uh, very you know lean little stripped down uh, genre character studies, and they are really amazing. And I hope we get like ten more of these. That's all I can say. Yeah, he better make more. Did you? I, I heard his next one is supposed to be about a QAnon guy. That's gonna be Could you so imagine? good. Oh my yeah. god! I hope. I, I I have a feeling he'd have to change the energy up a little bit. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I I don't know if you could do the kind of uh, you know I I feel like those guys might need a little bit more energy than this than this character needed. Oh yeah, they, we'll, we'll we'll see. Yeah, they got to be yelling about Adrenochrome and shit, and I'm gonna be nodding <laughs> along like, yep, you're right. Yep. You're absolutely right. <laughs> but yeah, that's but the we top did it. ten, baby. Holy it, fuck, that was a journey. That was a big one. <laughs> that was a big boy. Holy shit! Uh, Can't wait to. Thanks edit. so much. Yes. <laughs> thanks so much for uh, sticking with us through the the top ten uh, here. Hopefully, we gave you some movies to think about or go and check out. Once again, if you want to hear us talk about more of these, subscribe over on the Patreon and uh, just look up the title of the movie. And we might have already talked even more about these when they were a little bit fresher in our minds and we yeah. you know, weren't uh, tired from talking for three hours. <laughs> um, so go do that if that interests you but uh yeah thanks so much for for listening and in one week's time we are going to be back returning to the 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 usual show shenanigans with a bonus episode over on the patreon where we're going to be doing your bonus uh voted episode of one the yakuza by who was this by again i Uh, I keep forgetting 
Sydney Pollock. I, I keep wanting to say Sydney Lumet. That's yeah. what's fucking me up. So Sydney Pollock. So that'll be cool. Uh, and then we're going to be, uh, and also it kind of works out because that's written by Paul Schrader, one of the first screenplays yeah. him and his brother wrote, I think. So that's kind of a cool connection. And then we're going to be pairing that with Extreme Prejudice by Walter Hill, his 80s Western, which I haven't seen, but also looks amazing. Yeah, I'm stoked. And then the week after that, your guys' free episode is, uh, I think, timed to come out at the same time as like a new Scream movie is supposed to be coming out. Oh, yeah. So we are going to be talking about, finally, Wes Craven, uh, Scream, Scream 2, and Scream 3. We're going to do a big old triple feature episode, just Jamie and I over on the main feed. Heck yeah. And yeah, we're going to finally do some big boys. I've been We've been wanting to do these for a while, and Scream... Scream is personally just one of one of the films that really got me into uh, horror films as yeah. uh, when I was really young. So very excited to uh, revisit that and talk about it. Me too. Yeah. But anyway, I think that wraps it up for everything this week. Thanks so much for listening and keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy.